Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisencraft. Hello, everybody. Happy Saturday. Um, well, here we go. Are you ready? Because as anyone who's not under a rock knows, uh, what's left of the presidential primary season won't change the outcome. Donald Trump and Joe Biden are all but certain to be the nominees, and the general election campaign has begun. Uh, Democrats, look, we shoulder the burden of fighting to save American democracy from its most serious challenge since the Civil War. It is an anxious moment. I know I've heard from lots of you who are worried. But look, we have enormous advantages in this fight. Donald Trump is a toxic candidate with more negatives than any presidential candidate I can remember. I'm not young. I mean, not even Barry Goldwater, an American who who worried, you know, we Americans was we thought we were worried he would start dropping atomic bombs, right? But not even Goldwater was so deeply disliked by the majority of Americans. <laughs> Trump's pathetic egotism, the constant grifting, the lies, the lack of any character traits you would want your children to emulate would be enough to do most candidates. I know he's not most candidates, right? But we don't have to rely on that. His platform is an indefensible, indefensible mash of sort of desperate awfulness. Look, he champions banning abortion, taking away health insurance, handing Ukraine to Vladimir Putin. He he calls for keeping the border crisis going for his own political purposes. And he argues that we would be better off if the economy crashes. He promises to be a dictator and to use his power um, and all the powers of government to lock up his rivals, shut down news organizations. And on top of that, I mean, like, okay, so we have all of the personal traits, we have all of the policy traits, and on top of that, he appears to be suffering from, you know, delusions, thought disorder, and paranoia. As the campaign unfolds, all of this is only going to become more and more obvious to America. And on the other side, look, Joe Biden isn't the most popular president in memory. I'm the first to admit it, but he is one of the very best, and the economy is Beating all expectations, inflation is down, consumer confidence is up. For the first time in a couple of generations, economic growth is not just lifting the very top. American workers are better off than they've been in years. More of us have health care. Joe and his Democrats are squarely with the American people on issues like abortion and guns and voting rights and on the basic questions of fairness. Like, who wouldn't want to begin a campaign having beaten all expectations and with the evidence to prove it? Popularity for Mr. Biden, it's just going to go up. I, I know. I can hear the objections. Wait, Nikki Haley hasn't given up. And the Supreme Court, not just because it's the law, but for their own self-preservation, they might disqualify Trump on the 14th Amendment. But look, the GOP has missed every possible opportunity um, uh, available to them to get off this sort of Trump train. I don't expect them to do it now. And anyway, on all those policy questions I talked about just a few seconds ago, 
There's not a paper's width space between Nikki Haley and Donald Trump. No need to talk about her anymore. Okay, I know. I know. I hear it from you guys all the time. There are noises about third parties and independent candidates. And and I know you worry that in a close election, these efforts could amount to spoilers. We've lived through that. But let me remind you about Joe Biden. You know, he didn't participate in last week's New Hampshire primary. Representative Dean Phillips was unopposed on the Democratic side. You know what happened? Folks in New Hampshire went to the polls. They wrote Joe in. He won in a landslide. And look up and down the ballot, not just, you know, at the presidential level, but all the way down to school boards, right? Up and down the ballot. What now passes for the Republican Party is engaged in mass delusional thinking about what the country wants, about our own, you know, about their role in our future, um, and, and oh my gosh, I mean, this week, the appalling recapitulation of, of antebellum secessionist war cries over an Eagle Pass, Texas. This is, you know, dangerous. And it's just one example, but Americans aren't going to follow these guys in the civil war. We're just not. So that's the choice they want. They want like winner take all and we're going to win, but they're not going to get it all. So they're going to lose. And, and, and look, we shouldn't be afraid of this fight. We have never, ever had a better contest where the, where the comparison is so much in our favor. And rarely, and I mean rarely, like once in a hundred years, has there been a more consequential fight. So for the next 10 months, every one of us gets the chance to put our finger on the scale of history. I am deeply grateful for that opportunity. You and I, we get to help midwife the rebirth of American democracy. We get to help usher in the world's first really inclusive, multi-race, multi-faith democracy. We get to hold off the deepest threat to American democracy anyone can remember. And you know what? When we when we win, we're going to have a government where we respect each other, where we work together, not just to solve old problems, but to shape the world ahead. I am so excited and so motivated to do my part. And I've talked to many, many others who feel the same way. I'm going to talk to some of them in this show today. And they're also going to talk to you about how you can play your part, because you know what? It feels great. It really does. It feels great to be able to be alive right now and to be in this fight. So um, uh, I hope you'll join me. Again, very exciting. Um, You know what? I'll talk about this with my guests. So we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, um, I want to talk about a new book that has just been published. And its authors are going to join me as soon as we come back. Um, from this quick break. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath on WCPT 820. Okay, as regular listeners of the show know, I am an avid reader. I love reading uh, good books. I love reading new books. And there's a new one that I read this week I want to talk to you about. So let me introduce the authors. Hunter Walker was a frequent guest on this show before he changed, rather augmented his career to author books. 
Back then, he was a prolific reporter who witnessed the January 6th insurrection in person and then went on to do some of the best reporting about what happened. He has since co-authored The Breach, which told the story of the January 6th investigation, and we talked about that here. And now he's back with a new book and a new co-author. And that new co-author is Lupe Lupin, who is a reporter and an attorney, and his work appears in, you know, the, you know, those, those untrustworthy, uh, you know, down market places like, you know, the Washington Post and Vanity Fair. I mean, it's, you know, sought after stuff. And, and he has his own, uh, Substack, uh, newsletter, Paw Prints, and that's his, uh, uh, social media handle. He's prolific and has a lot to say about what's going on. Anyway, their new book is The Truce, and it is a very insider look at the Democratic Party's balancing act between the more progressives and the more centrists in the tent. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks so much for having us. It's good to talk to you again. Thank you for having us. This is Lupe. It's good to get off the bottom of the barrel and get onto WCPT. Woohoo! Well, look, before we get into the book, I got to ask you, Lions or 49ers? (laughs) I'm a Raiders fan, man. So the the, the Super Bowl doesn't exist for me. (laughs) Uh, I I have a good friend who's a Lions fan. So in solidarity with him, I'm uh, I'm going to a Lions bar tonight, tomorrow night to uh, to watch the game. So we're uh, the Lions fans for this playoffs. Yeah, I see. You know, I, I see Lions Forty Niners as a proxy for progressives and centrists. <laughs> yeah. Lupe, how did you two meet, and what made you decide to research and write about the internal balancing acts inside the Democratic Party? Well, as you said, Hunter is a great reporter. He's someone who's got a great nose for the story. Um, I was fortunate enough to meet him many years ago uh, in New York through through friends we both have in the media. Um, but we actually got started writing together um, sort of serendipitously. I was uh, working on something else, and because I'm you know, a political junkie and uh, interested in these things, I went to attend uh, the Manafort trial in Alexandria, Virginia, mm-hmm. Uh, for a day. And I, I met Hunter in that courtroom and we sort of forged a writing partnership over lunch and started writing with him for, for Yahoo News. And, and we were uh, covering a lot of the sort of legal dramas around the Trump administration and the investigations into Donald Trump. And we, in the process of doing that, we sort of thought there was another part of the story that needed to be covered, which is the, what's going on with the Democrats. And Trump has such magnetism uh, that you often don't hear the stories of how the Democrats are, are you know, dealing with their differences and uh, trying to find a way back into power. And so we were interested in that, and that's why we decided to write this book. Uh, it's a very um, important topic. I, I, I kind of agree with you to, that Trump has sucked so much of the media attention that um, it's not just the internal mechanics of what's going on in the Democratic Party that are unknown and that you've brought to light. But the accomplishments that Democrats have had when they've had power are um, not so well known. I suspect that will change during the course of this campaign, but um, I think they've had a pretty good run. Your book is filled with bits that a sort of old political hand like me found enormously fun to read. I could deep dive into Andrew Cuomo's 
you know, fiasco that cost the Dems the House in the last <laughs> midterms was particularly full of characters you might find in a in a good novel. Did you have sort of um, did you have fun meeting and talking to all of these Democrats <laughs> with their big personalities and their you know strong points of view? What was that like? So this is based on, you know, two years and, and, and hundreds of interviews, um, most directly. Um, and of course, it, you know, both of us leveraged relationships that we've had, you know, over mm-hmm. years and, and I've been so the campaign trail. Um, and, you know, first of all, I always love talking to people. And I think way too much political coverage is sort of devoid of the personality um, and the color. Um, so, you know, we were hoping to kind of convey that to people in an effort yep. to make it entertaining, but also as much as, look, we did get a lot of gossip in there and I, I, I can't resist doing that as a reporter and hope that's attractive for readers. Um, a big thing that I have always thought is that politics is essentially like workplace drama, um, but just with the highest, highest possible stakes, right? And I think what you were alluding to with Andrew Cuomo is a pretty good example of that, um, because essentially you have this, you know, redistricting issue where, you know, the city basically accused New York City accused his his governorship of not putting enough um, investment into the census. And I think it was like some ridiculously small number, like 20 voters uh, they needed to find, and they would have had an uh, an extra congressional seat. And that ended up cascading, you know, a series of issues that forced, you know, veteran members of Congress to battle each other out for the same seats and precipitated New York losing um a series of seats for the Democrats and are arguably costing them the House majority in an election that I think was one of those undercover Democratic wins you were talking about before. I mean, in 2022, they defeated all expectations. Um, and, you know, thanks to this mess in New York that was kicked off with this incredibly wonky census thing and Andrew Cuomo, um, it just wasn't a sweep of an election. So, you know, we love to get the behind the scenes tales and, and the characters that drive those things, because the reality is it's really boring stuff like redistricting and the primary calendar and caucus mechanics that define our politics. And, and too often coverage doesn't explain how that works. But I think, you know, you can do that in a colorful and engaging way. These stories are incredibly consequential uh, and they can be fun. And so that's what we tried to do here in this book. Yeah, I think you succeeded. And and just for those of you listening, um, that was Hunter. Uh, uh, so, so Lupe, let me ask you this. Um, the, th- the thing that comes through the entire book, at least to me, is your um, concern about the future a little bit. And as I read it, it's a concern that a divided Democratic Party might not be able to save the democracy from the Trump mega threat. And and I just I felt like that was um, an underlying question you were sort of trying to answer. Um, and did I read that correctly? Well, that's absolutely right. I, I think we are we are certainly very, very interested in the outcomes. And I think that the, to, to sort of tag along with Hunter's point, the the people we 
talked to are concerned as well. We talked to Democrats uh, all, all across the party. We've done hundreds of interviews, and folks see that the party does better when it's unified, but it is such a broad coalition with so many different, diverse, and colorful characters and so much passion about specific issues, issues that are really um, emotional and important, like the war in Gaza, that do tend to put wedges in this coalition that where you you can see a fraying of unity and, and contests for power and leadership. Um, and those, you know, the, the, the issues themselves can be either really emotionally proud or, as Hunter said, sometimes a little wonky and boring, but the people are always really interesting. And we, we found out Obama was involved in, in some of the attempts to unify the party and the way that he did mm-hmm. that to me was absolutely fascinating. Um, we read about that a lot in the book, but also, you know, these characters in New York, like you said, the progressive state legislators vying to take Cuomo down and Cuomo himself, the sort of architect of this vast empire of power without, you know, without too much deafness to uh, to hold on to it. It's all really interesting personal stories. And that's what, what attracts me to the reporting in the book is that you get to tell these stories in a, in a sort of broader way than a tweet or a simple sort of catchphrase and really get into who the characters are. Yeah, I was going to ask you this a little bit later, but since you brought it up, let's do it now. Um, uh, Hunter, I guess your turn. Will you set the table and talk about that meeting where Obama made his pitch and what that was like? I thought that was really interesting. You guys still there? Sorry, guys. Uh, for me, that was that was one of the more exciting things we were able to report out in this book, because I think, you know, for the years since he left office, a lot of people have been looking to Barack Obama, uh, both because President Trump, I think, began his political career as a racist authorized conspiratorial reaction to Obama, and also because Obama is just a uniquely popular figure in the Democratic Party. He's really the last one that had a unified coalition behind him. Um, And yet, you know, through most of the Trump years, he laid low. uh, But we found a little bit of what he was doing behind the scenes. And this included this uh, 2019 speech he gave to the Democratic House freshmen at this home of a mega donor in the the stately Calorama neighborhood in in D.C. And, And at that meeting, Obama talked about, you know, his ideal strategy for taking on Trump and how Democrats could confront some of these challenges they were facing, how they could appeal to young people and to other progressives, you know, while sort of still getting things pragmatically done in D.C. Um, and, you know, I think what you see in that speech that we also saw at other moments with Obama was he was incredibly worried about Trump. He was incredibly worried about the state of the party uh, and particularly about losing young people. Uh, and another thing we found in our reporting on him is that, you know, he really was traumatized by 2016 and convinced that the rift between, you know, the Hillary and Bernie voters really delivered the country to Trump. Um, so he sort of spent the past couple years trying to undo that. Um, 
And that included these pep talks to Democrats behind closed doors. Uh, We also report on this extraordinary series of phone calls where he sort of helped consolidate the 2020 field behind Joe Biden and convinced people to get out of the race. And then we've actually done more reporting that we've uh, put up on Talking Points Memo in the past week, just expanding on what we did in the book, um, you know, talking about the role Obama will have in this current campaign. Um, and he should he will be getting out there and, and, you know, going off that speech, a source close to him told us he thinks young people are the whole ball game. Um, so, yeah, it was really fascinating to kind of get a glimpse of him. And I would just reiterate that, you know, Democrats have gotten a lot of wins lately. And I think Joe Biden is better at this than he gets credit for. Um, And he's more adept than he gets credit for. We chronicle a lot of that in the truce. But at the same time, you know, the party is going through this identity crisis. I mean, uh, Joe Biden is clearly of an older generation. Uh, No matter what, this is going to be, you know, his last term uh, if he can win this election. And I think the party hasn't figured out, you know, who will lead them next and how. Um, We attempted to start that conversation in the truce. And I think, you know, for anyone who would argue that the Democrats aren't having some type of uh, identity crisis, I would just say, look how involved Obama, a former president, is and look how often people are looking towards him. Um, And that's just not typical, you know, of what we've seen in the past. I mean, that that doesn't fit with, you know, George H.W. Bush or Carter. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, This notion that, um, I mean, you're describing, I think, so accurately uh, the Democrats as a big tent party with with not just generational differences, but policy differences. And, you know, I, I for a long time in my life, I didn't understand what that meant. But I actually think inside political parties, big, diverse political parties, not today's, you know, monolithic Republicans. But inside these big tent parties that we've had is where a lot of the differences, the diverse opinions in America get hashed out. And you come to a place where a party says, these are the things that I can support in West Virginia and in, you know, northern Illinois and in New York and in Kansas, and we can all get on board. And I think that's an important service to America. And in some ways you're describing how that happens in the Democratic Party. That's right. Uh, you know, we I think we we tried to try to find a categorization, but there really is just a spectrum of different Democrats that, that you know, range from from socialists like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democratic socialists and progressives, all the way, you know, to to folks like Josh Gottheimer and Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, who currently, you know, occupy what we call a radical centrist kind of place in the party. Where they're actually, you know, as we report, the the progressives and the sort of mainstream Democrats in the Biden administration, and we've got a lot of solid reporting on on Biden's orientation as well, but they're working together. And the radical centrists are, you know, in this big tent, they're part of the Democratic um the Democratic world, and they're voting for Chuck Schumer to, you know, stay the, the majority leader in the Senate, but they're not um, not always working together with the progressives and the administration on their policy priorities. They prefer to take an oppositional sort of um, persona in the, in the public, and they, they, they calculate, I guess, that it helps them in their home states, particularly in West Virginia. It's tough to be a Democrat and stay, uh, stay in Congress, and so you see Joe Manchin um, 
take the particular views he does. And in Arizona, it's, it's actually not that hard to stay a Democrat um, and be in the Senate, but Justin Sinema has decided to, to sort of follow the same oppositional path for reasons of her own. Um, so we, as you said, it's a, a really broad, um, a broad and interesting coalition, one that is, um, is held together at times by, by very thin strands of, of common purpose and common cause, but is also, you know, capable of, of doing big things when people are able to stitch it together a little better. Yeah, I, I could I, um, pivot off of... Go ahead, I, I just wanted to pivot off of what you and Lupe were saying there, because I really think, you know, it gets to something that is kind of a central dynamic of this book, right? There's been this lazy narrative on cable over the years, um, you know, Democrats in disarray. Right. And, you know, it, it I think misses um, first off what, what you've highlighted um, that, you know, Democrats have had a series of recent wins from the 2020 election to, you know, the, the most recent midterms when they defied all expectations, the policy wins and the legislative agenda. Um and also it ignores the chaos on the Republican Party, right? You see a party that right. just had basically a coup over their House Speaker. The new one they installed is hanging on by a thread. Um, and we're only, you know, what, uh, three years removed from them charging into the Capitol and calling for their own vice president to be hung, right? So as we talk about discord in the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. I think it's really important to contextualize that. And it's a much more nuanced thing than, when we, than what we see in the Republican Party, which is just total violent chaos, right? And as the Republicans were having all this drama in the House, you saw, you know, the Democrats essentially vote in lockstep behind Hakeem Jeffries. Um, As Joe Biden went to pass his first term agenda, we chronicle in our book how behind the scenes, the progressives were actually, you know, his most rock solid allies, while these radical centrists were sort of counterintuitively a thorn in his side. So, you know, the chaos should be contextualized. The Democrats do have their disunity, but it's it's not anything on the order of what we see in the Republican Party. And we've also brought forward some, I think, counterintuitive stories about what that really looks like. And I think the overarching theme is what you were alluding to, you know, at the beginning of your question, which is that when you have a diverse big tent party, when you need to hold together a coalition of young people, women and voters of color, it is inherently messy. So there will be messes on the Democratic side, like some of the stories we're telling, whereas Republicans, you have a largely white base, you know, who who seem to be willing to throw reality out the window and follow a bit of an authoritarian model. Um, and that, by definition, involves falling in line. So they may be losing their values. They may be descending into violence and conspiracy, but they are in lockstep in that direction, whereas Democrats, you know, are more in order and, and, and doing better than the Republicans on many fronts, but they don't always get on the same page. Yeah, I, I view that as a feature, not a flaw. And I'm, I want to have that conversation with you guys. Um, Lupe, uh, America is gigantic and diverse, right? And we don't have a European parliamentary style of government where the parties stand for one issue and one point of view. They're meant to be ways that vast numbers of people can come together on the things that they ultimately agree about. And I think, um, you know, uh, what your what your book chronicles for me is how a very diverse 
group of Americans um, through the Democratic Party came to agree on a set of policies that were left of center um, and got passed in Congress. I mean, Nancy Pelosi's a genius um, it, to, to, that pushed Biden's agenda forward. It wasn't everything anybody wanted. And yet it was fabulous. Um, and it was something that the broad majority of Americans were able to support. I, so I, I, I thought once I read your book, I thought you were you were sort of showing the secret sauce. I know it was sort of worrisome because we fight with each other passionately about the issues to get there. But um, but it just you 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 chronicle these personalities at the end of the day saying, yep, this is what we're going to support. And as you say, lockstep behind Hakeem Jeffries in, I don't know, 30 votes. Right. And 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 the policy stuff, Democrats have been pretty good about getting stuff passed when they could. So I, I just wonder awesome, what, what, how you think about that. So, you know, you think about how, how tough it is to make for a great chef to make a good sauce, right? And it's it's getting the right emulsion and getting the right exact right blend and not applying so much heat that it splits apart again. Um, and I think that we are what we try to convey in the book is that Democrats have, and I think this is inarguable, they have a, a real numerical majority in America. It's a, a in part just just how the parties have lined up in the past several decades, but it's also in part because of the sort of shrinking of the Republican coalition that Hunter's talked about. There's yep. you know there's a very sort of monoculture in the MAGA movement, and there's not a lot of room for dissent or or disagreement. Some people might call it a cult, but you know it, it is at least a very small and very you know very regular tent. And the Democrats are this big and somewhat chaotic and diverse group, and they're they they need to find ways to stitch themselves together to hold power, and that is it is a very powerful thing. And I think it's the, the central message of the book is that you know look at how this effort to pull Democrats together, which has all these different pieces, Obama and a mansion, and, you know, Biden and Sanders getting their unity task forces together to hammer out a, what is really one of the most progressive uh, platforms that a, a, a Democrat has ever run on and, and results in some of the most progressive legislation that's ever been passed in Congress and actual climate legislation. All of that is, is inspiring and, um, you know, a real, a real recipe for success. But it also, in telling the stories and talking to the people involved, you get a sense of the fragility of that process. And I think we're, you know, we are, we are seeing it under strain right now uh, with progressives unhappy about U.S. US foreign policy and un, unhappy with, with some of Biden's decisions, you can see how that coalition is a really, a really, um, you know, a really fragile uh, a mixture, a really fragile emulsion, if you will, of of these different groups in uh, in American politics that don't always get along. Yeah, you wrote. Let me just read one of the paragraphs in your book back to you guys, because I thought it was about this question, and um, and I. Uh, really important. You said the idea of appealing to and governing for all of the people, even those who supported the other guy is an old one and it's central to American democracy. But the concept sat awkwardly next to the reality of 2020, in which a vast number of Americans had set aside their commitment to democracy, considered Biden's leadership illegitimate and wanted an authoritarian installed in his place. 
it's one thing to transcend partisanship and occupy the lofty rhetorical space of the president for all Americans if your disagreements boil down to tax policy or social issues. But what happens when the other side is willing to violently assault the Capitol and to prevent you from taking office? I, I just think that was a, uh, it's a it's a profound question. I want to unpack that with you. Um, I, the Republicans have answered it in the negative. They don't want to govern for everybody, right? They, they're pushing policies that most of the country really doesn't like, and they're doing it in every state where they're in control. So I get that. But the I would even argue they don't, they don't want to govern. I mean, look how often they've pushed towards a shutdown, right? At least in the federal level, you're right. But at the state level, they're governing and they're doing things that their citizens don't like. Um, but I agree with you, Hunter, on the federal level. They don't want – they don't want the federal government. They have much more success in the states. So, um, um, but, but Democrats haven't rejected that idea. And I think that's the secret sauce to why they can overcome their very strong differences. Because as you write, look, if it's a difference on policy, and most of the Democratic fights are about policy one way or another, um, you, you can find a way to say, let's put the better the country first and come to the agreements that we can. Um, and maybe that's the secret sauce that you found that the Republicans have abandoned. I mean, Don, right. Donald Trump's inaugural speech was not for you or me. It was, for, you know, it was a, like, hey, guys, I know who I'm covering for. Then anybody else gets in my way. I'm rolling them over. Well, I, I think I'm putting a really. Oops, sorry. Oh, I, I think there's a there's a lot of truth to what you said. That there's that policy is is probably the best the best road to addressing this, and Democrats are in retaining their you know commitment to a pluralistic American democracy are 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 serving their interests as best they can. But I don't want to understate the challenge of. Uh, a potentially authoritarian movement, um, and I'll, let, uh, I'll, I'll I'll pass it to Hunter as I know he's got thoughts on this as, as well. But I think that it is really a problem that is still needs to be addressed. Um, uh, how do you deal with with MAGA movement? With the problem on the right, you're talking about on, on the Republican yeah. side, the authoritarian side. Is that right? How, how do we how do we reforge a really you know democratic polity throughout both parties? is something that I think Democrats have to reckon with as they look at the Trump movement. I mean, they've got to win the elections first, um, but they also have to think about the future and, and what Republican politics you know, means for it. What, 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 can, what can we do about this on the long term? So important, Lupe, that, that you've said that, because I've always thought that, I mean, I, it, the, the Democrats bear a special burden right now, right? It's the, it's the burden of governing when the Republicans aren't interested, but it's also long term. How how do those of us on left of center help those who are on the right of center rebuild a political party that's committed to all of America? And that is just an enormous burden on one side. Hunter, what are your thoughts? Well, I think you're putting a really fine point on on something we were all talking about before, which is that, you know, the chaos on the Republican Party has involved, you know, fundamentally losing a lot of the values that they once had. Um, you know, you have a, a candidate who has, you know, over 90 criminal charges against him. Um, you know, they're completely falsely and, and uh, denying elections 
based on deranged conspiracy theories. I mean, this is not the conservatism of Mitt Romney and Ronald Reagan, whatever anyone may have thought of that, right? Uh, meanwhile, Democrats have held on to a lot of their core values. And that may be, as you call it, the, the secret sauce. Um, and I think one thing that we found as we were writing the truce is that, you know, as we were saying before, there are all these fascinating conversations and deals and characters behind the scenes that we tried to chronicle. Joe Biden did a lot to get his policy wins, build bridges and heal the rifts in the party. You know, there were these unity task forces and all of this real work that was done that people can read about in our book that, you know, mm-hmm. helped Biden kind of heal the divisions of 2016. And it's a huge task. But as he was doing it, The Democrats' best ally in terms of uniting their own internal divisions and uniting the country may be Donald Trump, because amid all of these policy disagreements among, you know, what is, as we're all describing, a very, very complex party, the only thing that they all universally agree on is that Donald Trump is an existential threat. And as Lupe was saying, you know, the stakes are very high in 2024. So, you know, that's one reason. I mean, I think, you know, what we're seeing with Gaza right now is an issue that is almost uniquely suited to strain the alliance Joe Biden has built. And yet, you know, I wouldn't bet against him, both because he's had success with this in the past and also, you know, so many people across the spectrum of the party are, you know, terrified by the authoritarian prospect of Trump. Yeah, no, uh, the idea that that there's a common enemy that, uh, I mean, if you care about uh, human rights, if you care about uh, sensible gun laws, if you care about climate change, if you care about, um, uh, you know, abortion, I mean, if you care about teachers, if you care about books, right, there's a lot of people who don't normally agree about things, but they all have a common enemy here in today's GOP. So I I, I agree with you that... um, Boy, it, sure, it always helps to have a uh, something to fight against as well, something to fight for. You guys, you guys wrote this too, and it's just such an important reminder. After he defeated Donald Trump, Biden faced the dual crises of a once-in-a-lifetime public health disaster and a volatile predecessor who had no intention to accept defeat or physically quit the White House. And I, I, I think it's such an potent reminder of where we were, you know, when he took office. Um. Exactly. It is a a really um, it's striking, I think, to think about how how dramatic the the times we've lived through have been, even even just the past few years with the, the pandemic, the shutdowns, all of the all of the major disruptions in American life and the political reactions to those major disruptions, which. You know, to me, as someone who believes in science and vaccines, it borders on, on, on the irrational. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of that built into this all this really serious crisis on January 6th, which Hunter has done such a great job of covering, um, which he read about in his book with Denver Riggleman, and which has you know really tested the boundaries of American life. And I think uh, something that that, that, that I talk about with friends and uh, is that it, during the Trump administration, we were, we were all sort of on this page of like, I just want a president that I can ignore for a while. You know, someone who's not constantly 
in the middle of my life and, you know, creating chaos and problems and, and, and trauma. And the, uh, the Biden administration has been a much more, uh, a, a much more regular presidency in the, the, of the sort that we all remember from earlier periods in American history. And I think in a way he suffers a little bit from that and the media attention isn't on everything he's doing. Um, and he's also managed to pass a lot more legislation than than most presidents. And as we said before, he's he's charted a more progressive course than most presidents. But I don't think he gets quite as much credit for that because he's not as attention grabbing as his predecessor, and he doesn't eat up all the, the media oxygen in the room. Um, and so it's it's easy, I think, for Americans to forget how how dramatic our circumstances were a few years ago and how different they are now. Boy, I couldn't agree with that more. Hey, you guys also, you, you, I mean, the characters in your book that you, that you interviewed, they, they come alive, but they aren't just the ones today. You have this sort of fascinating history of the filibuster in your book. Um, and, uh, you know, um, Hunter, do you want to talk about that? And Because uh, I just thought that was terrific, too, and very helpful. You know, it's funny that you you bring that up right after we were talking about the pandemic, because, you know, I think in our Internet addled, you know, social media heavy culture, um, we're really not looking at a lot of history, you know, and, you know, we could have something as extraordinary as January 6th um, or as the coronavirus. and, you know, we all went through that and, and it's easy to forget. And, and I think we have a lot of uh, impulse to forget and to not want to go back to that. So I think, you know, that's part of why we did so much work um, to get, you know, um, a recent historical perspective of the Democratic Party. But we also took a few issues where we, you know, dove back further in time. Um, And we basically found that, you know, the filibuster was sort of, uh, which is, you know, one of the most consequential, you know, pieces of, you know, how federal law works, um, was kind of this accident created by the great historical villain, um, Aaron Burr. And, you know, we, we take you through um, that origin story in the book. And, and it's amazing because, you know, it has complete bearing on, you know, how we govern today. Um, and I think that's another piece of context that we really tried to have throughout the book. I mean, one of the fundamental mysteries that we cover um, is how you have a country that I think is by and large a liberal country. That's part of why Democrats, you know, continually win the popular vote. Right. But we don't always get that result. And when you are looking at why, you know, there are these structural advantages that Republicans enjoy um, from the dark money that was leading to some of those congressional losses we talked about in New York to the Electoral College, which is, I think, the most obvious one. And then the Senate, both with the filibuster and the fact that, you know, rural states have the same representation uh, that you see in places like New York and Illinois and California. Um, so, you know, it was really important for us to delve into that. And we tried to both take it all the way back to Aaron Burr, but also, you know, really show how it works and how it's important today. And, and I can't resist jumping in here. because uh, Just think about the analogy of Aaron Burr 
uh, to our, our current times. Aaron Burr was obviously in the duel with Alexander Hamilton, kills him in Weehawken, New Jersey, and he gets indicted in New Jersey and New York for that uh, over that killing. Uh, but he's still the vice president of the United States, and he is still widely beloved in the Senate chamber when he gives this sort of farewell oration um, saying, you know, I'm, I got to leave here now because he was actually going to go flee from the, the criminal process. Um, and, but I think that there are some changes that we should make. And, and one of those changes was sort of eliminating the rule that the house has that lets you move on from debate um, by, by a vote of the House, and it's out of those those changes you recommended, in which the Senate adopted, that we get the filibuster. It's not something they recognized right away, but a, a few decades later, you see the filibuster develop from that set of changes that Aaron Burr, while he was under indictment, uh, you know, in the in in two of the states, was was responsible for because he was still this sort of uh, charismatic and beloved figure in Washington. Uh, and I think I think that's a really resonant historical analogy of, of how everything everything new everything old is new again in some ways. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you also talked about how the filibuster was used in so the most uh, anti-progressive pro-slavery ways throughout its history. Yeah. So Absolutely you're right. right. It, it, it's largely changed. been a tool that, that you know in its history has prevented civil rights legislation from getting passed. Yep. That yep. A, a large proportion throughout, throughout centuries of American history has been uh, opposing civil rights legislation. And it's only recently that it's become this sort of block everything the other party does kind of tool in the Senate. Um, and then we get into that in the book. In the book, um, uh, I think people had uh, looked at the de- now I'm going to go in the weeds a little bit. The Democratic Party's changing of the rules uh, to uh, to say, look, we're not going to start in small, um, completely monochromatic states for our primaries. We really don't <laughs> think Iowa and New Hampshire um, ought to be picking um, our candidates. So they made changes so that that wouldn't happen. And I think somebody warned you because um, you, you wrote, if a state's leaders follow through on the threat to and ignore the DNC's rulings, which uh, – some of the states did, particularly New Hampshire, Biden would be forced either to boycott New Hampshire, which would mean devoting no early resources to the state, or campaign there and open himself up to delegate penalties in primary or charges of hypocrisy later on. But now that it's over, the result we know was he didn't participate and he won. Well, I, I don't think it's... I, I don't think it's entirely that simple, um, because, of course, yes, he did. He did win in New Hampshire um, through that write in campaign. Right. But, you know, this change to the primary calendar, and I'm so glad you you honed in on it, because it is one of the things that, you know, I think is one of the most under discussed stories about what's going on in the Democratic Party right now. Um because it's going to have implications for a long time. So essentially, the reasons behind it were, as, as you noted, very obvious. I mean, Iowa and New Hampshire, these are two small states, a 90 percent white population. And they had this extraordinary outsized influence over um, the presidential election for you know 30 or 40 odd years. And we, we go through the history of that, too. And, it, you know, it, it, 
may involve like a broken copy machine and, you know, mm-hmm. just really esoteric, weird stuff. Um, but, you know, it was defining for a long time. And a lot of Democrats wanted to change that. And, and Joe Biden is the one who finally did. Um, in some recent reporting we've done, we found it was really like a call that came from the White House um, that, you know, brought those changes about. But where it really gets interesting is, first off, the fact that New Hampshire is a swing state, right? So even though Joe Biden, you know, won the primary there, Lupe and I were talking to the Democratic chairperson, Ray Buckley, and he's, he's you know, livid over what happened with his state essentially getting demoted. Um, and as much as Ray was like, Biden's going to win here and I'm going to fight for him, he said, you know, the fact that Biden didn't have a ground operation in New Hampshire yet um, is crucial, you know, and he, he's confident Biden can win. But, you know, the bottom line is you would want a presidential campaign to be running in a swing state by now. And as a result of, you know, his promise not to campaign in New Hampshire, Biden, you know, has not set up in the state yet. So that yep. could get really interesting in the general election with four, you know, pretty crucial electoral votes on the line. But then more importantly, um, you know, the Democrats baked into their calendar changes a future review of the schedule. And this essentially sets the stage for, you know, the next great infighting in the primary. I mean, we've talked to people like Ro Khanna, you know, a progressive who's actually out campaigning with Biden this weekend, but, you know, is a potential presidential candidate down the line. And he's already, you know, seeking to get his preferred states towards the front of the line. Other people are going to want to weigh in on that. So, you know, I think this change has had impact, you know, on two levels. One, it potentially tied Biden's hands a little bit in a swing state. And two, you know, people may not realize this right now, but but in the 2028 cycle, regardless of who wins this time, you know, the Democratic calendar will be completely in flux. And, you know, you've sort of seen the groundwork laid for a pretty big dispute inside the party. Yep, I think you're 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 right that um, they could not lock it down this time. They could change it, but in order to get the change, they had to promise that they would uh, review review the results and and look at it again in the future. And as always, anything that is not locked down is subject to a fight for sure. Um, but I don't see the Democratic Party, anybody in the party really pushing to m- make our presidential selection less diverse. That'd be hard. It'd be hard to go backwards. I don't think you'd go backwards in that regard, but it's just a question of, you know, sort of which states are first, you know, is yep. it going to be Michigan? Is it going to be South Carolina? Is it going to be Nevada? But but I think this whole thing, right, is kind of an example of what we've been talking about throughout this conversation. You know, there are a lot of good reasons to make the primary calendar more diverse. There are, you know, that's a net positive. There are a lot of reasons to continually review this because it allows them to, you know, put early focus in the battleground states. And, you know, once again, what we're seeing here is that work of doing the right thing, of sticking to your values and of dealing with a diverse coalition is sometimes messy. And Republicans just don't have that problem. So we're in the middle of a crucial fight and it is at times and in some ways an asymmetrical one. Yeah, again, really important point. I mean, the Republicans have gone from a big tent party to a small ideological party. And the ideology is whatever Mr. Trump wants. 
Um, that's that's <laughs> appealing to a you know a, a chunk of America, but it isn't representative of our country. And the Democrats are trying to work out within their party the gigantic differences amongst us across the country. But this is the work of keeping this nation uh, whole and together, somehow working out our differences through democratic means, not through storming the Capitol. And, um, and, and I just thought your book, it was such an, a, a joy for me to read about these people who are so passionate about, like, I have, think this is the right way for the country to go. And somebody else saying, yeah, I think that is the right way for the country to go. And, and not liking it, but finding common ground enough to move us forward was, um, I don't know, gave me a lot of comfort. Did you guys come away worried or more comforted by it? (laughs) Lupe, what do you think? I think I I, I think I I come away from covering the Democrats in a a much happier place than I do when I'm covering Trump trials and and the Trump movement. (laughs) But I do worry that the Democrats have a lot of problems they need to solve. Um, as, as they try to hold their coalition together. And I just want to say I'm really grateful that you read our book and read it with so much attention. Um, we hope we hope that it spoke to you. It sounds like it did, and, and we hope it will speak to your listeners as well. Yeah. Um, well, all right, everybody. We are getting towards the end of the hour, and that's my cue to say the book is The Truce. And my guests, uh, Hunter Walker and Lupe Lupin, are its authors, and they are – um, they, they write with clarity, and um, it's it's a it's easy to read, and I mean that in, in a complimentary way. It's easy to read, and it's fun, and there are uh, uh, great stories in it of you know um, <laughs> Democrats being Democrats, and and this thing at the end is this miracle that we don't always like each other, and we don't think alike, but somehow we've managed to move the country forward together. And for me, at least, that was um, an enormously optimistic read, although, you know, we don't get along, and that does have its issues. Um, Hunter and Lupe, great to have you here, and I look forward to talking to you guys again. Thanks so much. We'd love to do it. You bet. Take care. All right, everybody, we're going to take a break for the news. And um, when we come back, we're going to talk about grassroots and how we go to work. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Okay, welcome back, everybody. That was interesting, wasn't it? I mean, it's always great to talk to authors about their new books. And um, uh, Hunter and Lupe just did a really good job with this one. It was a fun read. And, um, and an important one, you know, uh, does raise the question, can Democrats stay together? Um, and I think we can. And one of the reasons we can is because of the energy on the ground. And um, those of you who have heard this show before know that one of my favorite uh, groups that organizes folks that gives you on ramps to be part of what's going on is Swing Left. And I'm joined today by Matt Caffrey, who's their senior director of grassroots and community organizing. Hey, Matt, how are you? Hey, Edwin, I'm doing great. Great to be back on the show. Um, I'm happy you're here. Um, and I'm asking everybody this, but like, I, I just want to know, are you as excited about the Detroit Lions as I am? <laughs> 
Well, I'm a Midwesterner, uh, but I am from Columbus, Ohio, and we tend to try to avoid discussion of that state up north, especially this year. It was a painful year for my Buckeyes. So, um, you know, I guess I guess I will uh, I will root for the Lions, if only because I like rooting for the little guy. But but I'm I have mixed feelings about it. Yeah, it's not college. I mean, that college fight you have is right. different. But yeah, yes. Uh, um, so I'm a big fan of swing lefts, and you've been on the show, and, and and your colleagues have been on the show. But it always helps just to remind everybody mm-hmm. about the organization and its mission. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, swing left came about in 2017 because. You know, our founder had the the brainwave. You know, he had never worked in politics before. Had the brainwave that people all across the country were going to want to do whatever they could do to stop then incoming President Trump from achieving his objectives, from from implementing his agenda, and that the first best opportunity for us to do that would be winning back the House in 2018. And so there was this groundswell of energy. You know, we had the, the website crash the day it launched. I think the day after the Women's March or the day before something anyway, um, you know, and, and we had this groundswell of energy across the country with this basic idea that if you come to us, we will help you find the best place to spend your dollar or your hour to win back the house. And that fundamental um, promise that we will help you find the highest impact way to take action, to defend democracy, to to stop the MAGA extremist movement, that continues, right? Like that is exactly what we're focused on but the political um, priorities have shifted, right? And so this year, it's not just about winning back the House, although we we definitely need to do that, Um, but it's also about retaining our Democratic majority in the Senate, reelecting Biden-Harris, and winning more power in the states, uh, which we've just seen over and over again how important that is. And so, yeah, we just recently launched our super state strategy, which is the 12, you know, at the center of that are the 12 states that we think are essential to those those fights to, to win a Democratic trifecta so that we can govern uh, in 2025 and then to, to continue to gain power in the states. Do you want to tell uh, folks what the 12 states are? <laughs> yeah, let's let's do it. So um, let's start with winning back the House. You know, in 2022, uh, we came devastatingly close, you know, 6,650-ish votes away from uh, defending our majority in the House, just barely lost it. And we've seen the chaos that's ensued from there. Um, the good news is that the path to retaking the House really runs through a lot of fairly blue places, uh, through blue states. And so the two sort of states that are you know, our super states, just because they're so critical to the House, are New York and California. Then we have two states that are challenging, right? But where we have great Democratic incumbents uh, in the United States Senate that are essential if we're going to maintain our Democratic Senate majority, and that's Ohio and um, Montana. And then the other eight states are presidential swing states, and most of them have other important fights on as well. So that's Nevada, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, North Carolina, and Georgia. So these are the states that we we really believe, you know, from the top of the ticket all the way down, the big, the biggest and most important fights in the country this year will happen in these 12 states. So that's where we're going to focus our energies this year. Um, Love that. Let's talk about New York just to start. There's a special election yeah. coming very fast there. Talk about that. That's and, right. And what's going on, what you guys are doing and what people can do. 
Yeah. Well, you know, New York three, uh, we lost it to George Santos, an embarrassing loss. I think a lot of Long Islanders really are still feeling the embarrassment and the, the shame of having let this con man sneak into Congress, not doing their due diligence. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of energy um, now that he's been expelled from Congress to make sure that we elect the Democrat to the seat uh, who had represented the seat before you know, he was running for governor. In 2022, that's why he wasn't running for re-election there. Um, but he's decided to run again for the seat that he has formally held. Um, we are doing a ton to try to help him get there. You know, folks are phone banking all across the country. Uh, in Chicago, we have our sort of um, joint indivisible swing left Midwestern phone bank. You can find it on Mobilize. Um, you can join that and, and, and make calls with fellow Midwesterners from across uh, the, the area. Um, and, you know, we're just trying to do everything we can uh, to, to score the first win, right? If we can score a win in February, it's February 13th is Election Day. Um, we know that um, that momentum will carry us into the fall. And it, and it helps tell this story, right, that Democrats are winning, that we are – this is not – you know, the, the MAGA movement is not invincible. They are scary. They are dangerous. They are radical, but they are not invincible. We have beaten them before and we can beat them again. And what I love about New York 3 happening in February in the midst of the Republican presidential primary kind of coming to its close is that it's an opportunity for us to show momentum and enthusiasm, you know, in, amongst the chaos and the, and the, you know, whatever extremism that's happening on the other side. So, I, you know, February 13th is going to be here before we know it. I mean, folks should definitely phone bank for New York 3 if they can, swingleft.org slash NY03. Listen, also, everybody, um, that's the politics. Um, we are the, the majority that the Republicans enjoy in the House is tiny. Mm. Um, and they can't govern with it. But a few votes, you know, it's possible and very smart people have speculated about this, that Hakeem Jeffries might actually get that gavel before the next election. So, yeah. you know, I mean, the Republicans are down a few and, you know, they got more leaving. Um, and this chaos in the Republican Party is driving them out. So uh, every yes. vote matters. Every vote. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be incredible? Um <laughs> What good that would do for the country to have a competent, you know, party that's interested in governing back in charge of the House. Um, but, yeah, it's yeah. yeah, it could happen. It could happen. Right. But New York three is the first way to make it happen. Um, right. and, and I want to talk to you about this, too. Um, you, you know, you're doing things to win. And the last yeah. conversation I had was a lovely one with um Two guys have written a book about the it's called the truce and it's about the Democratic Party and whether the center and the left can get along well enough not to fracture the party entirely so it won't do anything. And um, and yet they write about all the things we've accomplished with that those fractions going on. I raise that because you're campaigning for John Tester in Montana. I love John Tester, yep. even though, you know what, he is he is far more conservative in Montana than I am in Chicago. Chugo, mm -hmm. You know, but but he's a he's a solid guy, a great guy doing yeah. the best he can to represent the people of that state and to help the Democrats um, in their coalition so they can accomplish things for the whole country. Can you just take yep. a minute and tell the people on the left who are listening um why it's important to support a centrist like John Tester. 
Yeah, absolutely. One, one thing I want to know, my, my wife actually organized for John Tester before we met. She was an organizer there in Montana in 2012. She is such a good and decent human being. This is one of the things you find. Um, more you get to know some of these Democratic candidates, like John Tester is a good human, a multi-generation really Montanan, a, a rancher, an organic farmer, I think. Um, you know, he's salt of the earth, right? And, oh, he's not going to be, you know, uh, as lefty as, as some of us might be. But um, having him in the United States Senate, you know, is part of why we've had more judges confirmed by Joe Biden than I think any other president in that in you know history up to this point in the presidency, right? Like, and more diverse judges. And you know, being in the majority means we control the agenda. And you know, I, I don't think I need to persuade anybody that they'd rather have you know a Democrat in charge of the United States Senate than Mitch McConnell. You know, we've lived that enough. I think we understand the stakes. And and if you look at the Senate map this year. There's just not a path to Democratic majorities without winning in Montana and Ohio. And these are challenging states. You're not going to get, you know, the most you're not going to get Elizabeth Warren in Montana. And that's OK, um, because John Tester can come to the Senate and bring his really good values. You know, he stands up for working people. He understands rural communities and native communities. And he fights. You know, that's <laughs> we desperately need his voice in the United States Senate. And we don't get to a majority without him. Uh, and without yep. Sherrod Brown uh, and some of these other Democratic incumbents we're working to protect. Yep. I mean, I don't you know, it's important that we Democrats don't go into our own bubbles like the Republicans did. And they threw out any diversity. And we recognize that we're a giant, mm -hmm. diverse country. And some of it yep. is a little more conservative than other parts of it. And you know what? We got to bring them along, too. And they make it possible yep. for us to move forward. Yeah. Really important point. Um, uh Last week, I had on the show folks from the Progressive Turnout Project, and they, like you, they help people um, connect people to opportunities to participate in these grassroots campaigns. You also help yep. individuals make donor decisions. Talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, just part of this big national strategy launch that we, we had this week, we are also rolling out a simplified um, version of our fundraising tool. So. You know, when you give to Swing Left, you know, we um, we don't engage in primaries. You know, we we work to raise money for the most competitive districts that are going to be most likely to decide you know, who's going to control the House or the Senate or or a state legislative chamber, that kind of thing. You know, we pull that money ready to go to the Democrat that wins the primary. So we're not wasting resources fighting each other, but we're, we're saving them to fight the Republicans in the, in the general election. Anyway, our new fundraising tool is the easiest, smartest way to give. You know, you, you land onto our, our website, swingleft.org slash funds. You know, you, you're presented with a few options. You know, do I want to give to the National Impact Fund? Do I want to give, you know, particularly targeting, uh, you know, the states or, or grassroots organizing? Um, and then with one contribution, you can give to candidates up and down the ballot to, to grassroots organizations in the states doing the critical organizing work. And you feel good that you will have done the smart and strategic thing without having to sort of um, vet a hundred different options. And, and I have this experience. I know everybody else does. You get a million emails, all of them telling you the sky will fall immediately if you don't give, you know, that that 
why, why haven't you responded to my last six emails? You know, you need to give $25 right now or, you know, the Republic will crumble. We, we have to stop doing this as a movement. Those emails are, are demoralizing. They're awful. Um, we promise to, to do it better. And, you know, I think if you talk to Swing Left members, they don't get deluged in Swing Left emails. Uh, they get thoughtful, you know, strategic outreach that says, okay, here's the fund. It's got all the candidates we need to support. This is why we need to support them. You know, can you make a contribution? Um, and, and we try to just take some of the, the silliness and the, and the frustration out of the process. And you can just kn- know it's the smart strategic investment that, that we need folks to make. Um, you know, resources matter, but they're not the only thing. And so we're also trying to sort of level up our organizing by really focusing on local grassroots groups, helping them be more successful, helping them have a bigger impact, building new ones. That's been a big project of ours this year. Uh, We're focusing on door-to-door canvassing and relational organizing because we know that those sort of face-to-face conversations are the most powerful thing in politics. And then we are, um, we're just recommitting to turning out the, what we call the surge voters. These are folks who hadn't voted, maybe didn't vote in 2016, but have voted in a major election since then. We know that they're going to be absolutely key to winning in 2024. So we're going to write letters to them. We're going to call them. We're going to open their doors. And we need folks all across the country to be a part of that as well. Um, let me turn in the time we have left to talk about the states. I am so excited that Swing Left is focusing on state legislatures Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I think for Democrats around the country, certainly for the people who think broadly about politics, most of, five years ago, six years ago, everybody was thinking about national politics. And, and we Democrats didn't think enough about the states and we got our clock cleaned. Um, yeah. I think uh, 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 my friend David Pepper has done a lot to teach us about some of the problems with that. And we've yeah. we've seen that Republican states are making lives miserable for the people who live there, mm-hmm. particularly women um, and people who are gay um, and people who uh, want to go to school and people who want to read books and <laughs> teachers. And I mean, it's a pretty long list. People don't want to get shot going to the mall. You know, it's a pretty long yep. list. Right. And in Democratic states, particularly in like my beloved upper Midwest, they're doing like yep. remarkably good things. Now, um, yeah. So, so you're focusing on, on on where a lot of the power is in America, but not as much attention, which is you know mm-hmm. in state legislatures. And so, talk a little bit about that focus and where you're paying attention this cycle. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me say this is a big ongoing problem, and and we're not going to tackle it in one election cycle. But the wins that we have every cycle make really significant impacts on the lives of the people who live in those states and on all of us. So the last time I was on your show, I, I, I checked my calendar. It was back in October. We were talking about this critical fight to win a, you know, Democratic majorities in Virginia state legislature. And that was so critical to protect abortion access, to protect democracy, to protect climate action, all sorts of things, and to put a check on Glenn Youngkin and his radical agenda. And we won, right? The good news is folks across this country mobilized and organized and worked their hearts out to help us win in, in Virginia, to help us win in Ohio, where we protected re- reproductive 
freedom on the ballot in November. Um, this is part of why we have so much momentum coming into this year, right? But yep. but the truth is, the the project to win back power in the states is going to take the rest of this decade. You know, our plan uh, goes through 2030, so that when we get to the next redistricting cycle, Democrats are in an even stronger place than they were in 2020, which was already a little bit better than in 2010. And so right. this year, we're focused on. It was utter disaster. Yeah. And David Pepper had a first um, row seat to all of that. That's why he's such a good advocate for it these days um, in my home state of Ohio. But, you know, we're we're focused on Arizona, where we we are so, so close to flipping that state legislature and giving Katie Hobbs Democratic legislatures a Democratic legislature that she can get real things done for the state of Arizona. We want to defend majorities in Michigan, where Democrats had this incredible year in 2022. We got to make sure that we keep those majorities in Michigan. Pennsylvania is on a nice edge right now. We want to make sure that Democrats are in a position to, to get stuff done there. New Hampshire, we have a governor's race there we're going to invest in as well. And the legislature is super competitive. And then you got North Carolina. And this one hurts, right? Because we've got a critically important governor's race. But that state legislature is um, Brutal. not great. Awesome. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's pretty bad. And so there's a long road to, to winning in North Carolina, but but we have to make progress. You know, part of part of our 10 year plan is we can't just try to win legislatures all in one fell swoop. We've got to be making progress. We've got to be chipping away at this every cycle until we sort of get ourselves in the position. And, and the breakthrough that happened in Michigan last year, I think a lot of it has to do with Gretchen Whitmer being amazing and it has a lot to do with reproductive freedom being on the ballot. But it also took years probably decades of groundwork being built and organizing happening to get this Democratic legislature in Michigan that is doing so much good. And, you know, in Minnesota, you know, I've talked to advocates on the ground in Minnesota. They've passed basically everything you could wish for in Minnesota this past uh, session. It's been awesome. Just incredible investments in public transit and education and climate and just absolutely everything you could want. And it, it took a long time to get them into that position. You know, we're not working on Minnesota, but, um, you know, that smart, careful organizing has paid such massive dividends. And now, you know, when Joe Biden needs to decide what kind of project programs to invest in, he will have an example in Michigan and an example in Minnesota and in so many other progressive states that are sort of showing us how to get it done. And, you know, the a good example is the deal between the unions and the environmentalist movement in Michigan on that state's uh, clean energy investments. Just remarkable and showing us how to get it done. Like like your last guests were talking about, how to bring the center and the left of the party together to make really significant gains on the policies that we care about. So, yeah, I love what's happening in some of these states. I hate what's happening in some of the others. But um, but I think if we keep our eye on the ball and we just keep working at it, it's, it can't be 100% of our focus, right? We're in an existential crisis with uh, the former president and while under indictment, you know, all of the things, so many threats to democracy. We can't exclusively focus on the states, but we have got to keep our eye on that ball uh, and keep chipping away at it uh, so that we can slowly regain power in the states. Yep. I, I, uh, I want to say, let's say it's just a couple more minutes. I don't, I agree with you about that big national fight, but um, something else is going on that I find transformational. When I grew up, the democratic party was, organized on the ground um, by organized labor and big city mayors and their organizations. Mm -hmm. Um, Labor is still uh, a renewed part of that effort, and big city mayors are doing what they can, although they don't have the clout they used to. But the Democratic parties in the states where we have made a difference have changed. And they've said, look, 
we're going to organize in a different way. We're going to create as many on-ramps for people to get involved as possible. They don't have to be precinct captains or whatever it was that they had to be before. And we're mm-hmm. also going to work with people who don't want to be part of any political party but care about a mm-hmm. set of issues. And <laughs> I think about Lavora Barnes, who did so much of that organizing in Michigan for years. Yep. Um, ability to work with groups that aren't aren't Democratic Party members, they're just citizens who care about stuff. And you put North Carolina on the list. North Carolina has a new state party chairman in Anderson and Clinton, and she is going to take help from wherever she gets it and figure out. So it's a much more inclusive effort on the ground that is more comfortable for people to volunteer and be part of. And I just think that's a sea change in the last 15 years. It's so it's yeah, it's such a welcome change. And I I sometimes allow myself to go back to 2008 and think about all those local neighborhood teams that we built all across the country to elect Barack Obama. And I'm like, why Mm -hmm. did we let these go away? (laughs) You know, why did we not continue that energy? Um, And then, you know, in 2012, I I was an organizer for the president's reelection campaign. And, uh, you know, those incredible neighborhood team leaders, so many of them kind of just went back to their daily lives after the election ended. And I think to myself, why did we not keep that going? And that's what I love about Swing Left, because we are a permanent part of the grassroots infrastructure in the progressive movement and the Democratic Party today. You know, we support local grassroots groups. 450 of them across the country to keep organizing year round. You know, we've got folks who were canvassing in the Central Valley of California all through the holidays, you know, who are out, you know, every other weekend, you know, getting people to pledge not just to vote, but to remind their friends to vote. And we're going to remind them of that promise um, in these critical uh, swing congressional districts. You know, we've got folks who have done just ungodly amounts of work to flip this seat in New York three. And they're they organizable part of their lives, you know, month in and out all the time. And I think, um, right, the, the states who have embraced that, I think, have made a lot of progress. I mean, the, the great organizing happening in, in Michigan, and, and I'd also say Wisconsin, where they've just done such a great job supporting local grassroots organizing, like, it's transformational. And, and the, the enthusiasm, the energy, and frankly, just the amount of work you can get done to turn out Democrats when you have, when you are opening up the party, opening up the process and saying, we don't have to control everything. We don't have to make every decision. We will let folks come in and do this work because they care and because they can, and they can bring their own ideas and their own um, energy to it. I mean, that I think is exactly what our movement needs. And Swing Left is trying to be as big a part of that as we can. And I'm, I'm very, very happy that other people are doing that as well. Um, and I'll just plug, you know, we, we have this program called Team Up, where we match folks who want to take leadership, who, who maybe have made phone calls or written letters or knocked doors before, but they want to do more. We match them together with other people in their community. We put them through a full training. We provide them ongoing support so that they can build a new grassroots group in their community. And, you know, if one of your listeners thinks, hey, that sounds like me, I'm dissatisfied with the way I'm able to be engaged right now. I want to do more. I really want to encourage folks, go to swingleft.org slash team dash up. Go look at the program. I think uh, it's going to be really compelling for a lot of folks who are sitting at home anxious and maybe even a little sick about what's happening right now in our politics. Um, You know, you are not powerless and you do not need to be on the sidelines. You can do so much in your community. The work that these local grassroots groups are doing, it's absolutely incredible. And anybody can play a role in that. 
you know, and um, here's the other thing. And I, it, it's fun and it's uplifting. Yeah. And the people who do it are actually happy <laughs> because they're doing work that they believe in and they're doing it with with others who are, you know, f- fighting the good fight together. And it's not miserable and drudgery and oh my gosh i'm forced it's actually get out of your house and you'll find that america can be a lot of fun yes yeah and we we have some stories about this people who had never met before they came to the same you know house party to get a swing left group started in their community and now they're best friends they spend all day together you know they they organize their group together um and I just I've heard so many of these stories. I think the worst part of this this experience where our country has been through over the last few years, you know, is the sense of powerlessness and isolation that I think so many of us have. And, the, you know, you wake up every morning and you look at your phone and you're like, dear God, I cannot believe what's happening in our country. But when you're a local volunteer or a, a grassroots leader, you see that and it just fuels you to just do the work and we know we have seen it over and over that when we do the work we win the work works and if we trust it if we just lean into it you know we can have a really good 2024 this was a great week for joe biden right this was a great week for the democratic party um we can win this year (laughs) exactly (laughs) yeah um we we can win this year and it and it can be a transformational year but we just need everybody off the sidelines. That's that's it. Yes. If folks getting yep. no spectators this year. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, listen, everybody, that is Matt Caffrey. Fabulous. Right. Fabulous. You you, you want to be him. And it's not, you know, the path to it leads right from your website. Uh, just go to Swing Left, sign up and start your career, you know, as an organizer and as a full-on participant in this uh, this remarkable chance to put your finger on the balance of history, which is you know yep. where we are today, and it's pretty exciting. Thank you, Matt. Yep. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here, as always. Yep. Take care. Be well. All right, everybody. It's uh, We're going to take a break, and um, when we come back, uh, my friend Jill Weinbanks is joining us, and we will talk about uh, some legal questions that are out there in the ether. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, welcome back. And I am joined by my friend, the awesome Jill Weinbanks, who is, of course, the uh, widely respected, doesn't even say it, um, uh, 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 legal voice on, you know, federal corruption going all the way back to Watergate. Um, Jill, Welcome. Welcome. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, it's lovely. Thank you for having me, Edwin. Jill, we have so much to talk about, and I, I want to talk <laughs> about the Trump cases. But before we get to that, I got to ask you just this isn't really about law, but um, did you see the reporting this week that I think it was some 26,000 women in Texas have become pregnant from rape since the abortion ban was passed? I definitely did. And if you look at all of the states that have banned abortion in all cases with no exceptions for rape, the number is 10 times that. And Mm. that is shocking, isn't it? 
And remember, Governor Abbott of Texas said he was going to eliminate all rape so it wouldn't be necessary. Well, obviously he failed at that, and it is still necessary. I I was... I had trouble thinking about the abortion ban when I read that. I really did, because I was so staggered by the prevalence of rape in our society. I mean, you know, if you think that maybe one in 10 rapes lead to a pregnancy, that that's a quarter of a million rapes in Texas alone. That's just wow. appalling. Wow. That's, I actually hadn't thought of it that way. And that is a dramatic way to portray the problem, not only of sexual violence against women, but just the number alone has to be a reason um, has to be a reason for eliminating the abortion bans that well from my point of view all abortion bans, but certainly at least adding an exception for rape and incest. Because how can any human being argue that a rape victim or an incense incest victim should be forced to carry the result of that horrible violence to term. It's it's just remarkable to me that anyone could make that argument. It's staggeringly disturbing, and staggeringly disturbing. And, and I mean, um, yeah. All right, let's stay with Texas for a minute. Um, oh, yes, one of my favorite subjects I, now. I, I am completely captivated by what's happening at Eagle Pass, you know, where Governor Abbott has ordered the National Guard to stand between the Rio Grande and the Department of Homeland Security, whose job it is, of course, to patrol the border. Um and I, you know, a few weeks ago, I wrote that it was like Fort Sumter. And then our friends in the Supreme Court, they sided with the federal government and said, yeah, Homeland Security does have the right to protect the border. But it was a five to four vote. Oh, my God. Well, how is that possible, Jill? It's, you know, because it was an order without any opinion written, we yep. don't know what those four people could have possibly been thinking. And I have to think it was on some technical grounds because I've, I've recently been doing some research on this issue and am working on an opinion piece about it because I am so terrified about not only what Governor Abbott did in terms of putting up barbed wire first in the middle of the Rio Grande River, and then when he was ordered to remove that because it interfered with navigation and international relations, he put the wire on Texas land at, with the permission of the landowners. So it's outrageous that he does not recognize the federal government's right to do international relations and to handle all immigration matters. That is a federal responsibility. He has recently written a statement where he says, well, the federal government has failed to protect our state. And so I'm taking it upon myself to use my state troops to my state guard to defend the border. And I'm not letting them on to our land. That is so outrageous. You are right to be outraged that there were four Supreme Court justices who would have agreed with him, who did agree with him. And if there had been one more, it would have been his win, which is the end of our federal arrangement 
it is the end of the United States. His his statement seems to me to be a declaration of an intent to secede from the Union or to start another civil war. He is going to pit his state troopers, which, by the way, the federal government can nationalize. Uh, President Eisenhower did it to integrate um, a high school, and President Kennedy did it to, to integrate a university and with, by the way, James Meredith, who was a law school classmate of mine. And hmm. I think it's something that, you know, you don't want to see happen, but it was the National Guard, the nationalized state guard that escorted James Meredith into his university. So we're at a really dangerous place. It's very dangerous. And we have to understand what Governor Abbott is doing. And he he also is the one who did the horrible abortion ban, which had vigilante citizens able to enforce it. And since it's not state enforced, the federal government couldn't stop it. Um, yeah. So it, it's, he's been a really, I mean, depending on your point of view, he's been really effective if those are your values. But um, to me, he's taking down our democracy. He's taking down the rights of half the country. And he is now threatening our union. We used to, you remember Obama used to say, we are not red states and blue states. We are the United States. Well, we aren't united now. This radicalization on the right has has followed a trajectory that we've seen in other times and other places. They, they Jill, they get so that um, they they they're you know like the jingoism that led people to go into World War One or uh, the you know, crazy radicalism that. Uh, led countries to be fascist before World War II. This sense that we're right and we're not going to compromise with anybody and it's winner take all and that winner needs to be us. That leaves them in a position where they're saying we get to dictate to the rest of you. And if not, we're taking our marbles. We are leaving. And that is absolutely the secessionist sense that you see. I am so glad that it's Joe Biden and not me that has to deal with this problem. <laughs> because like you, like, well, maybe we nationalize, nationalize the National Guard, federalize the National Guard. But those Texans in the National Guard might ref- then refuse orders. I mean, that, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't even be better. Um, I, I, you know, I'd like to close 15 military bases in Texas today. That would hurt them. Well, let's just take away all our federal funding. See how they like yep. that. Um, yep. You know, if they want to secede. I say goodbye. <laughs> I'm, I'm not right. solve about the, that. I, you know, Jill, I, 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 I woke up in the middle and I said, we could solve the immigration problem for 49 states. Just give Texas to Mexico. Well, you know, you have to be alarmed. I hate to say this, Edwin, but many other state governors have shown that they would support him and adopt his statement. Some of them that. don't even have a southern border. I mean, yep. it's it's absurd. They aren't yep. sending by national it guard from North Dakota to Texas. Exactly, and and he also has said in his letter he has a constitutional basis, which I can analyze for you, but it's not all that interesting. Except for me to conclude, the Constitution does not say what he says. Number one, but he has a factual basis, which is also a complete lie. It's these fabricated pieces of information fabricated, totally Mm -hmm. lies. He says, Joe Biden has failed to protect us. Joe Biden has done a better job than Trump ever did in keeping the border secure. And those are the facts. And it's time for those facts to get out. 
But the problem is the people who believe Governor Abbott don't listen to MSNBC or WCPT. They aren't listening to you and me. They're listening to Fox News and they actually believe what he's saying. It's not true, but they believe it and they will act on it. Thank God, again, it's Biden and not me. Because you know what, Joe? I like you want to know what an open border is. Okay, guess what? Next week we're really going to open the border and tell everybody you want to come in next week. You get a free pass and let Texas deal <laughs> with ten million people. Yeah, that, well, uh, I'm I'm afraid of what the violence would be if yeah, that happened. Um, I don't want to do yeah. it really. I'm just saying I'm glad they're yeah. cooler heads and smarter than me that have to deal with these yeah. things. I mean, thank heaven. You know, this raises the issue about the immigration bill. We finally have a bipartisan bill, and Donald Trump has told them, do not, do not pass it, because I don't want Joe Biden to have any credit for solving the immigration problem. And that is really, and when I say him, I'm talking about Donald Trump has said, he's not even in office, and he's still pulling the strings and telling the Senate and the House what to do. That is absurd. Well, I, I, Jill, this is the year we put them in the ash bin of history. Um, boy, do they deserve well, I'm and one of the ways. Try. Yeah. Well, Trump's trials, let's turn to that because that's not helping him. Uh, y- y- yesterday was the second time a jury said, yeah, you know what? You've defamed this. You're guilty of rape and you've defamed this woman. And now will 85 million shut you up? Um, that was that was a rewarding verdict. Well, let me answer the question you just asked. Will 85 million shut him up? The answer is clearly not, because he has continued to defame her since that verdict came in. He's defamed the judge, the jury, and E. Jean Carroll. So it isn't shutting him up. And, you know, there's been debate over whether the 85 million is a, um, it's actually 83.3. Um, Sorry. Whether that's a fair number, well, close enough to 85. Um, By the time he pays it, the interest will make it 85, I promise you. Um, And the question is, is that a reasonable amount? And it's mostly punitive damages. So you have to say, what would make him stop? Well, he testified he's a billionaire over and over and over again. He said his brand value is worth $10 alone. Well, if you're dealing with a billionaire, then you have to be in the billions to have it even register for him. If you're talking about the average person who makes you know, $50,000, which would be a good salary, and you say, I'm going to fine you $50, that probably doesn't matter. But if you say, I'm going to do $50,000, that would get them. So how much does it take to reach a billionaire? And I think it's a perfectly reasonable amount, and I think the answer to the question is, will she have to sue him again for the continuing defamation, and is that the only way that you can shut him up, or does something else shut him up, like the criminal cases ending in a verdict of guilt? Yeah. Let's go to the criminal cases. Is Georgia going to be the first big trial to move forward? Are we getting close to that? And how is the country supposed to think about these new charges that Fannie Willis has engaged in 
um, possibly engaged in. I don't, I don't know what the facts really are, but the charges are that she's, you know, engaged in misconduct with her office. Well, it, let's be specific about what it is. It's not misconduct in office. It's not anything that has to do with the indictment or the development of the investigation and the evidence or the upcoming trial. It is a personal relationship with the lead lawyer on the case who she hired as an outside contractor. So basically we're talking about an affair and she wasn't married. I'm not sure when, if I'm not sure if there is an affair, although the allegations are that there's some financial records that show that he paid for trips for the two of them, non-work related to California and to Florida. So let's assume for purposes of this discussion, that it's true that they have a relationship. They're on the same side. That is not a conflict of interest. It would be a conflict of interest if she were having an affair with one of the defense lawyers. That would certainly be a problem. If she were having an affair with the judge, that would be a problem. But she's having an affair with someone who works for her on the same side. So it's irrelevant to the evidence. It's irrelevant to the prosecution. Is it a bad look? It's a bad look. Does it reflect poorly on her judgment? It's not great. Does it violate any legal ethics or any Georgia law? And the answer to that remains to be seen until we know all the facts. There is a Georgia law that says that you as a um, an employee of the state cannot accept anything of value from someone who is a contractor for the state. And if that's a correct rendition of what the law says, and if he, Wade, who was a contractor, paid for trips for her, that would be something of value. And that would be bad. It still wouldn't influence whether the trial goes forward or whether she's qualified to remain on the trial or whether he is qualified to remain on the, the trial. But it certainly would not be a great look. I, I mean, it's, yeah. as, as someone right, so who, who thinks sorry. the evidence we, is pretty clear, I'm sorry yeah. that it happened. I wish it hadn't. But so what? All right. So that, this will be something that some ethics, some maybe the some Georgia ethics, government ethics board will deal with. And, it, and we can think about it separately. So let's talk about the trial. Are the delaying tactics nearly run their course? And will we be able to start this trial, you know, in this century? Well, OK, so that's a complicated answer and involves predicting, which I hate doing. But. You know, the trials have been set up seriatim in order to make sure that he has full attention on one before he has to go to another. And there was a trial that was supposed to start March 4th, which is almost tomorrow. I mean, it's February 1st is next week. And jury selection was supposed to start at the end of February. Unfortunately, he made an appeal based on the false claim that he has immunity from any prosecution because he was president. That is going to be thrown out eventually, but it's still pending in the courts. And pending the appellate court decision and further appeal to the Supreme Court, which I suspect will happen, um, there's been a hold on activities in that trial so that discovery has been halted, emotions have been halted. 
So it's looking less and less likely that that will start in March. That case is the January 6th case in D.C., federal case, Jack Smith. Well, if that doesn't go forward in March and it's looking like it won't, then what happens to the May trial date? Well, that's in front of Judge Cannon, and she's been doing her best to make sure that it gets delayed. She's put off certain crucial decisions until March that make it hard to see how you go to trial in May if you don't evaluate and make decisions until March. So if that one doesn't go forward, then Bonnie Willis had an August trial date. Well, what's going to happen to that? If this one doesn't go and it gets delayed, could that be the first one? Yes, it could. It's definitely possible. But will it be embroiled in this, what I think is frivolous accusations that the trial has to be changed and actually uh, dismissed? I mean, there's a motion to dismiss it on this grounds, which is absurd. absurd. Uh, but it takes a time to, to decide it. So all of them are in jeopardy. The New York um, fraud trial is civil, and I believe next week we will have an amount of damages in that, and then that will be appealed. Uh, we have the decision this week in the E. Jean Carroll case, and that will be appealed and held in abeyance. But he may have to pose, uh, post $83 million in order to appeal the last judgment. And then we still have the New York criminal case. And that has to fit in at some point. That could actually end up being, you know, maybe the first the first one. Um, it's hard to say because it's a question of who can move their trial date to fill the blanks that are created by the postponement of the March 4th date, of the May 4th date, of the August date. Those are all, uh, it's, you know, once one domino falls, it's going to knock down all these others. So although you could maybe say, well, it's not going to knock it down. The March 4th one now goes to the end of the line. On the other hand, it's one of the most important ones because it deals with the actual election interference. And don't you want to know the answer to that before he does it again in the next election? Yes, I think everyone, even those who believe he's innocent, should want to know. If they find out that, you know, 12 people say, no, he did it. He did it. He's guilty. They won't accept that. They don't accept that. So, you know, it won't affect how his true MAGA cult votes, but it will influence how independents and old-fashioned GOP members vote. And even some of his supporters have said, if he's convicted, it would change my vote. So that's where we're at. But I, I guess I want to... I'm not a lawyer, um, and I just I I am so f frustrated. I want you to tell me that these delays are built into a legal system um, um, for good purposes. That they are that 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 that, that, mm, that this isn't just we are open to abuse all the time, and we can never hold powerful people to account. But there's an actual good reason that our system works the way it works, because it's so frustrating. It is frustrating. And when I was in private practice, I was really distressed at how many lawyers really relied almost exclusively on delay as a tactic. That's wrong. But some of this is 
legitimate. Everyone has a right to a fair trial and to fully explore all the legal issues. Everyone has a right to appeal a verdict against them. And in in the cases that are being delayed now by, let's say, look at the immunity one, I'm honestly not sure why the Court of Appeals is taking so long to reach its decision, because to me, it's a crystal clear, easy answer. Um, and I don't know why they took so long. Some people speculate that they didn't want to influence the New Hampshire primary. So they didn't, you know, release their opinion just before that. Well, okay, it's over. Are they going to now hold off until after the South Carolina primary? You know, I just don't know when you stop delaying. And it's not that hard a decision. You want the court to take into account both arguments, you know, for both sides and reach a fair conclusion. But I I don't know why that's taking so long. On the other hand, it does. the, The rules allow a certain number of days to raise an appeal. And there's nothing that's going to force Donald Trump to appeal until the last day because that delays a final decision. And his he benefits from delay. He definitely does. So on the other hand, for other people, it's a question of, can I find a lawyer to do this? Can I afford to do this? Is it cheaper to just take my punishment? And at 83 million, I would say, most people would say, yeah, it's worth finding a lawyer. Um, but the, the, the system is not built for the miscreants. It's built for ordinary people to allow them time to consider their options, to hire legal support, to raise the issues. And yes, it's totally fair and it's proper. And it is how we function as a democracy with a system of justice that's the rules of law. Okay. Um, you know, I want, it's important that we keep saying that to, to as many people as we can, because because just if you don't know how the system works, it sure feels like, you know, the the, the powerful guy is not it's, it's impossible to hold him to account. Now, yesterday's ruling helped a lot, but it wasn't yeah. criminal. Well, I mean, let's remember how many times he has been held to account. He the Trump University was found to be a total fraud and was put out of business. The Trump Foundation was put out of business and they were barred from participating in any other charitable organization because of their frauds. He has now been found liable twice for defamation and in impressive numbers. He has, well, his, his colleague Giuliani has been held liable for the same thing. Um, Fox news has been held liable. There's a lot going on of accountability None of it is criminal yet. That's what we're waiting for is, will he be held accountable? And if he is, will he be sent to jail or will he be in home confinement or will he be paroled? I mean, it's hard to um, hard to yeah. envision, but first you got to get 12 people to vote guilty. And any one of those 12 can lead to a hung jury. So, yep. Even though the evidence may be clear, sometimes people just go, nope, I'm not. And it could be a Trump supporter. It could be for some other reason. And that's that's a problem. There was a Trump supporter in a criminal case against Manafort who talked to the press afterwards and said, I'm a loyal Trump supporter and I believe everything he says. But the judge swore me to make my verdict based on the evidence in this courtroom. 
And based on that, I had to vote guilty on all counts. So even for Trump loyalists, there's some hope that they will pay attention to the evidence in a courtroom. And what I have seen of the evidence in all of these cases is pretty, pretty important and pretty clear and compelling and shows guilt. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm hopeful that we will he will exhaust his ability to delay in the you know sooner rather than later. Um I'm I'm sure there's pressure on the jurists not to sit on their decisions. Um and if they're trying not to influence elections, I get it, but we're in one. So they, they yeah. uh, there's nothing they can do about that. They might as well just do the work that we hired them to do. Exactly. And the Supreme Court has to act quickly. It has when there's been significant political pressure. Uh, Bush v. Gore is a recent example. Watergate is another. We filed for uh, a subpoena in April and we ended up arguing in July in the Supreme Court. And within one week, we had a verdict in our favor. Yep. And he, Nixon was ordered to turn over the tapes, which led to his expulsion from office. So yep. it is possible for them to do something quickly. There's no, you know, you don't have to debate what's an obvious outcome. And sometimes the outcome is essential within a quick time frame. You know, that old hackneyed phrase, justice delayed is justice denied. And getting a verdict after he's president. And there's also a Department of Justice policy against prosecuting a sitting president. Yeah. I don't believe it's legally well-founded. And I would change that opinion. But right now, it's the governing opinion. And that means if he wins re-election, yeah, well, what happens to all the federal The rule of law goes with him. Yep. 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 Very sad, um, huh? I, I, Jill, I think, and I, and I think this for not any legal reason, because again, I'm not a lawyer, um, but I think the Supreme Court might uphold Colorado and say, uh, "Yep, he can't be on. We can't force Colorado to put him on the ballot." Uh, uh, what do you think? Um, you know, I, I would say I'm hearing so many commentators say they will pay the Supreme Court will find a way out of deciding this. And if I look at the Constitution and the history and I analyze the words, it's clear to me that the Constitution says he cannot hold office. Now, there's an argument that doesn't mean he can't run for office, but What's the point of running for office if you can never assume the office and think of the damage it would do to have elected someone who the court then says cannot be inaugurated? So I think they need to decide that issue, whether they like it or not, before anybody votes. And even now where people, uh, you know, the primary seems to be over, um, it isn't technically, but it seems like. You know, he only has one opponent and she doesn't have the delegates yet, but there's only been two elections. So it doesn't matter. Um, You know, a lot can happen with 48 more to go. And if he is the nominee, then it's worse than if he's not on the primary ballot. And, you know, there's another stepping stone, which is, okay, you can get on the primary ballot because that's not up to the state. That's up to the party. Well, why let the parties 
you know, at least decide, okay, he can be on the primary ballot, but he can't be on the general election ballot because he cannot take office. Yep. We disqualified people because of age or natural born citizenship or residency in America. Those are stated in the constitutional qualifications to run for president. And there is this other qualification is you cannot have been engaged in a or aided and abetted or given comfort and support to an insurrection. And it doesn't say a criminal conspiracy no, or a criminal insurrection or that you are guilty of a criminal case. It says insurrection in the same way that you can be impeached for high crimes and misdemeanor, which are not crimes. It does not require that you have violated anything legislated in a criminal code of any state or federal government. So why can't you just say, listen, the common definition of insurrection is what happened on January 6th. And therefore, he is disqualified. Seems to me the answer is obvious. I'm still Pollyanna enough to believe that the Supreme Court is going to agree that there is no legitimate argument. The argument that he didn't take an oath to support the Constitution because his words were not support. They were defend, protect and preserve. Well, if you don't think defend, protect and preserve is support of that is a semantic difference without any distinction. Yes, it would be nullifying a part of the Constitution. Of course it would. And the president, they argue, isn't an officer of, well, he's not only an officer, he is the commander in chief. That certainly makes him an officer. And so I I just don't see any of the arguments. And by the way, this argument that Congress has to do something, the last sentence of that section says they can remove the disqualification. It doesn't say they have to do something to impose it. And then they can remove it. It says they can remove it, which means it happens automatically without their involvement. So I, I just don't think any of the arguments they have made hold water. They're all frivolous yep. and need to be thrown away. Oh, what a mess. Um, we've run out of time, Jill, so I, I got to go. Um, but it's always a pleasure. And um, I know everybody's listening loves uh, what you bring to this. So thank you. Thank well, you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. It's, uh, I wish I could think of something really optimistic to say. How about that there'll be a big verdict against him in the New York fraud trial? All right. I like that. Thank you. Okay. And, uh, Thanks, Edwin. You bet. All right, everybody. That was the incomparable Jill Weinbanks. We're going to take a break for the news. And um, um, I have a great guest for you coming back. I'll tell you about that on the other side. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay. Um, Simon Rosenberg is back. You know Simon. He's been on the show a bunch. He's a longtime Democratic strategist who is indefatigable. He's the man behind Hopium Chronicles, and you need to be part of that. Um, uh, take a listen. This is a great conversation. All right. So, so Simon, you're everywhere. I, I've seen you on cable news shows and in print. Um, you're talking with organizers all over the country. That says two things to me. One is indisputable, and that is that you are incredibly knowledgeable and maybe the hardest working guy out there. And that is fabulous. <laughs> uh, but the other, and I want to get your take on this, is that, is that um, people are, are hungry 
really hungry for someone to show up with data and tell us that we can actually believe our own eyes and our own senses as opposed to the stream of gloom and doom that, you know, is the bought and paid for information that everybody's getting. And, I, you know, they I mean, they told us the big red wave was unstoppable. They told us inflation was coming down for how long. They told us the economy was better, but maybe not. You know, and, and we all are starting to feel like, yeah, you know what? The economy is better. And they didn't win the red wall thing. And you're just you're, you're coming out there and you're affirming reality. And I just think there's a huge hunger for that. Yeah, people are sick and tired of being sick and tired, you know, and uh People, I, I, I talk about how I feel like a lot of my work is about giving people permission to love their country again, you know, and that which has been taken away from us. And so, look, my basic take on where things are now is that Joe Biden is a good president. The country's better off. The Democratic Party is strong in winning elections across the country. And they have Trump. And what I mean by they have Trump is that Trump is an historically weak and uh, figure. He's far weaker than he was in 2020. He's campaigning from the courthouse and not from the White House. He's degraded. He's far more degraded, extreme and dangerous. His performance on the stump is far more erratic and unhinged and disturbing. He's making huge, like traditional political mistakes by coming out against the ACA, for example, where there was no upside whatsoever for him to do that. And when I look at this election, I see us having a very strong argument for re-election. We're winning elections all over the country. And the Republican Party are making an enormous mistake by backing the most unfit man who's ever run for president in our history and who's far weaker than he was in 2020 and struggling in these in the early states. And so I feel good about where we are. We got a long way to go and a lot of work ahead of us, but I'd so much rather be us than them in every way possible. Yep. Um, I uh, really didn't want to talk about Trump, but let's stay with him just for a second. Um, yeah. You know, we, we, we hear people to. talk about his victory in Iowa and New Hampshire, and they say, well, his campaign is better organized and he really owns the Republican Party. Um, and people ask me, well, what, why should I not worry about that? And, you know, my response is you should worry about it, but we're going to win. And then I start to explain yeah. why. But you're better at this than me. Could tell well, people so, why yeah. they should be concerned, yeah. but not panic. Yeah, because, look, it's my view now, as I've been doing a lot of talking and commenting, is that I think something Look, we won in 2018 and 2020. Trump would not have won in 2016 without the help of Comey and the Russian government, right? I mean, he was 10 days out. He was five points down. He had done terribly in the debates. And then Comey came in and changed the election. Trump never had superpowers. Trump never had some kind of deep connection to the, to the working class voters in America. He's been a loser for his, you know, for for his entire, the MAGA is a losing politics. It's what it's what Nikki Haley said the other night. And we won in 2018 and 2020, and we took away the White House, the House, and the Senate. But then something dramatic happened in 2022 and 2023, which is the party in power in modern American history always loses seats, right? We always we have bad midterms. We lose, yep. you know, off year elections, and and that didn't happen. The exact opposite happened. We've actually gained ground. In 2022, in Arizona, Colorado, Georgia, Minnesota, Michigan, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, in 2023, we 
we took away Colorado Springs and Jacksonville, two of the high, biggest, the largest Republican-held cities in the country. We took away the Wisconsin Supreme Court seat, and hopefully you're going to unravel the rancid redistricting in uh, Wisconsin. We took away the six-week abortion ban in Ohio. We took away the Virginia State House and the hopes they had that the 15-week abortion ban would be a safe haven for them. And just in the last few days, elected the first black speaker in the, in the capital of the Confederacy in all of Virginia's history. We took all sorts of stuff away from them in the last two years and did far better than expected. And it's my view that the reason that's happening is because I think the Republican Party broke when Dobbs happened, that something fundamentally broke inside the Republican Party, where this party of Trump and MAGA had become so unattractive and so ugly, even to Republican voters. And they have struggled with performance and elections in every election after 2022. And now in this basic dynamic that I talk about it. Since Dobbs, the strong overperformance for the Democrats wherever we look and, str- and struggle for Republicans is now playing out in 2024, right? Trump in Iowa, anemic turnout, unbelievably low turnout in a, after they spent $100 million in a very competitive Iowa caucus. He got 56,000 votes in Iowa. 700,000 registered Republicans didn't vote for Donald Trump last week, right? That's a Simon, huge I looked number. at that. And I just like, what is all the attention for? He got three Chicago wards. Right. No, it's, it's, listen, and so just let's talk, though, to your point about the reality setting, right? Forgetting about the way this has been covered. And then, and then the second thing that happened is that last, on Tuesday, he got, he came in 10 to 15 points below public polling. Right. I mean, it was an incredibly disappointing performance for him, given where all the public polling was. And Haley did well enough that she's staying in the race, which is a huge problem for him. So Donald Trump in the first few weeks is coming out of the box weak and struggling, not strong and powerful. And the second thing is that we know that there is unbelievably big flashing warning signs in the polling in the last two weeks for Republicans. The two things that everyone is focusing on, and they're right to focus on it. One is that 20, 30, 40 percent of Republicans who voted in Iowa, New Hampshire, these are primary voters, right? These aren't broad Republicans. Uh, So very committed uh, voters said that some of the things that Trump has done, the crimes that he's committed would be disqualifying for him in their mind, meaning that there's a potential for a mass potential for mass defection from Trump in this election. The second thing, and I've talked to other political strategists about this, the fact that more Haley voters in Iowa said that they would vote for Biden over Trump, I think is unprecedented in the modern era of polling. I don't know that there's ever been a case where there is a a big chunk of one party that is willing to go vote for the nominee of the other party in the election year. And it shows again how much trouble Trump is in. In 2022, all these Trumpy candidates in the battlegrounds, you know, won their primaries, struggled to bring along the non-MAGA part of the party, couldn't pull their coalition back together, and they lost. And that's the likely scenario in 2024, that Trump is, the the non-MAGA part of the Republican Party is already expressing enormous dissatisfaction and discontent for Trump. And we don't need to win all of them, right? And if we just get a quarter of those voters, we win this election by five, six, seven, eight points in, in November. And to me, that's the likely scenario at this point, given the data that we're seeing, given the experience 
that we had in 2022 and 2023. And given the fact we've also just watched Trump with our own eyes and we see how diminished and degraded he is from 2020 and how awful he is as a candidate and how strong the country is doing under Joe Biden. So when you put all that together, I'm very optimistic. And I think, you know, gang, we got to go out and do the work and go win this thing together. So I, I think that analysis is, as you would imagine, spot on. But it raises a different kind of question. And that is, OK, given that they have a likely nominee who is incredibly weak, uh, deeply damaged and likely to get more damaged between now and the election. Um, how is it that the leadership in the Republican Party you know, doesn't want to put some distance between themselves and that they would walk away from a border deal to protect him, that they would send their National Guard troops, the governors down to Texas in order to keep this sort of MAGA fantasy going. You know, in our party, when we've had presidential candidates who weren't just the strongest out there all over the country, Democrats Sometimes I didn't want them to. You know, they said self-preservation, man, I'm going to get off this this truck. That's not happening to them, the Republicans. They're going to go down. They're going to go over the cliff together. Let's see what happens. I mean, it's as you pointed out, it's really early. I think that in the Republican Party, Trump is this incredibly towering, powerful figure. But I think if you were an average Republican voter and you watched his performance, On Tuesday night, you were watching Fox News for his big speech, and then you watched him throw this temper tantrum and behave like a petulant, spoiled child, which is what he is, right? You're looking at that like, man, I don't know, where's that Trump guy that I thought was going to be this towering figure? He came off as kind of pathetic and weak and diminished and and petty, right? And so I I don't really know – I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. What, I'm not an re- expert inside of Republican politics. And I but I think that this notion that, you know, a month from now, Biden could be up by four or five points in all the national polling and Trump looks like an incredibly damaged candidate. I think it's why Haley, what happens with Haley is so interesting right now. I mean, she is having a lot of fun right now. She feels like she's achieved way beyond her expectations She's getting, you know, her super PAC raised more money than than Trump's super PAC did in the second half of last year. You know, she's made the case. She's in this thing through Super Tuesday. Super Tuesday, majority of the states are either open primaries or or semi-open primaries, meaning that independents and Democrats can vote, you know, for her. And so, you know, I think she's going to go for it. And I don't think we really know what's going to happen here. I mean, I I think the fact that Trump is now trying to force the RNC to declare him the nominee without him actually having enough delegates. These are things that feel desperate, right? This isn't strong and, you know, in a towering figure. This feels like desperate, pathetic, weak. And you just keep feeling weak, pathetic, desperate in every way. When you look at Trump, he seems that way. I don't know what's going to happen. I, you know, I have this, listen, Edwin, I have this growing belief that there's a chance the Supreme Court bars him from running. Because I think so, too, by the way. I I think so, too. First of all, the the legal case is kind of open and shut, to be honest. And and there's really not – this is not a complicated legal case. It's really about – politics. I think one of the reasons Trump is trying to shut down the nominating the nomination process is that he wants to go into the Supreme Court case as the nominee. He doesn't want to go in as a as a candidate because there is a chance and he knows this, right? 
that the, the secret powers behind the Republican Party now have an escape hatch with him. And if he's struggling and his performance is ridiculous and he's spending more time in the courtroom, he's been found, a jury of his peers determined that he's a rapist, you know, a court has determined that he, um, you know, that he committed massive decades long financial fraud, yeah. oh, right? Yeah. Yep. $380 million that, you know, they have an escape hatch now, right? The court could just could bar him from running. And then well, all I of don't... a sudden Haley, you know, becomes the nominee or there's a... DeSantis gets back in, but I'm not saying that is the likely scenario, but I also think that based on his, the clear warning signs of the weakness of his candidacy, there has to be growing panic in the non-Trump cult part of the Republican Party right now. And, And particularly when Trump is now openly defying the Supreme Court, right, which is something that he may do if they bar him from running. Right. Is this a precursor to him setting a precedent that that he feels the Supreme Court doesn't have dominion over him and his party? I, I don't know. I don't know all of this. I mean, I think these are Texas sure feels that way. questions. Yeah. It I mean, sure what, feels that but, way, doesn't it? Yeah. Right. I mean, this is a party that is the, the MAGA party. And I and I think that is the Republican Party today. <clears throat> Maybe the remnants will have a have a their battle of the bulge yet. But um. They have they're operating outside of normal politics. I mean, if they said on immigration, you know what, forget it. We didn't mean to negotiate with you because we're not negotiating. <laughs> that doesn't count. You know, in Texas, they fear the Supreme Court said you can't do what you're doing. In Eagle Pass, they're doing it. By the way, five to four vote. What was that about? Yeah, no, but I think that that's, I mean, who knows about the politics of trading votes inside the court, right? And, but the, but listen, I I think, I just want to say again, getting, removing ourselves from sort of the right wing noise machine influence daily discourse that happens in the media. The Republicans had an opening on on the border and immigration. They had an opening, right? Biden had struggled a little bit with this issue. His numbers are not so good on it. It is a secondary issue. I think one of the reasons the Republicans are focusing it on so much is that on the issues that really matter right now, the economy, inflation, the deficit and everything else, Biden is doing really well, right? So they've lost some of their core talking points that they've been using. They can't attack him for a war on energy because we had the highest domestic oil production in the history of the country, right? Many of their core talking points, crime, energy, the economy, have evaporated in the last few months because of the successful Biden presidency. So what they're doing in our business and the way that we talk about this is they're now moving down to second-tier issues. Immigration has been a second-tier issue in our politics for 20 years. You know, when Donald Trump tried to turn it into a primary issue, a top tier voting issue in 2018, he spent the last month of the election talking about border care, the caravans. And we won that yep. election by eight and a half points because at the end of the day, vote, you know, immigration and border may be important, but there are other things that are more important. The economy, inflation, you know, health care and so on. And so yep. the Republicans have never been able to turn the border and immigration into a mainstream voting issue in the general electorate. And I think the reason they're focusing on it right now is that all these other ways they had of attacking Biden have evaporated. And so they're now doubling down. And of course, because they're a party that's been overtaken by extremism and extremists, they're blowing it. Right. The fact that Donald Trump is now being discussed for telling people, no, we want the border to stay open. And that now that they've done this, you know, they're they're ignoring Supreme Court orders, they look like a crazy party. Instead of looking like the party of 
we're going to fix the border, we're going to make sure that there's an orderly legal immigration system, then they're looking like lawless lunatics. And so any attempt that they had to take advantage of this opening they had, like virtually everything else, it's like what happened with book banning, everything else, they always overplay their hand. Uh, with the public because they actually are an extremist party. I don't know how this is going to play out. But if you're telling me that for the next 10 months, Donald Trump is going to go to the American people and say, I want Putin to win and the West to lose. I want the border to stay open. I want more kids to die in schools. I want the planet to warm faster. I want 16-year-old kids to be working overnight shifts and meatpacking plants and not going to high, to high school. I want you know, tax cuts for my donors and higher deficits and less for everybody else. If you think that they're going to go to the American people without kind of agenda for the next 10 months and when you're crazy right and so i think that this position they're in right now is they're doing something that's impulsive it's not strategic and because they cannot and i think what they're doing is they're taking what is right now their mo- their best issue against biden and they're and they're lighting it they're lighting themselves on fire and yeah. and that's because that's who they are i don't know what that means though from a governing standpoint but, but politically do not believe for a moment that for general election swing voters, this looks like the Republican Party is doing rational and sane things right now because they aren't. And I think they're hurting themselves terribly. So, again, I come back to this basic thing that I think since Dobbs, something has broken fundamentally inside the Republican Party and, and that they're going to they continue to struggle as a national governing force. Yeah. So so in it. Yeah. I was smiling from like ear to ear hearing you, you know, sort of talk yeah. about the, the, what they stand for today, right? Just it's it, appalling, and they are going to go to the American people, and they're and they're sort of going to say those things, but they're but this is the other problem we have today, which is um, there isn't a the media, there are many media out there, and a lot of Americans don't hear them, right? We have. Um, so, so this gets at the job that you are exhorting us all to have in the next 10 months. And that is to make sure that, that you know, reality is something that people get a chance to see. And I think reality always wins in the end, but sometimes it takes a while. And so the reality that, in fact, they're the extremist, uh, 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 irresponsible, petulant, infantile, puerile, I guess, better word, party um, – is going to take some time for that to sink into the people who watch Fox News, and they've been calling us that for decades, right? So we well, have we a. May not, we may, but remember, Edwin, is that forty percent of the electorate is unavailable to us, right? But sixty percent is available to us, and I'll take sixty already. Yeah, I'll take 60-40. I think that's what it is. And I think our goal should be to get to 55% in this election, as you yep. and I have discussed before. And let me just read. I put out in my Hopium Chronicles post today. Let me just read to you what the Republican – I did a piece of it, but let me just read to you what I wrote. I just pulled it up about what the Republican agenda really is right now. They want Putin to win and the West to lose, the border to stay open, the economy to crash. Women, people of color to lose more freedoms and rights, the planet to warm faster, 10-year-olds to carry their rapist baby to term and for more women to die on an operating room table, tens of millions to lose their health insurance, more dead kids in schools, a restoration of pre-civil rights era white supremacy, big tax cuts for their donors, higher deficits and less for everyone else. 
books banned across the U.S., teenagers to work night shifts and meat packing plants and not go to school, the minimum wage to stay at 725, mass arrests and mass deportations of immigrants long settled in the United States, insurrections to get pardoned, to end American democracy for all time. If we can't beat that this year, given that that's actually what they're really for, you know, I mean, I will tell you, my friends who are listening today, the contrast, the, the, what we call in our business the negatives that we have to use against them are unlike that any group of political strategists and operatives have ever had in modern American history, because we have all that. And then we also have all those new misdeeds of Trump, which were not things that people didn't know about in 2020, right? They didn't know he had yep. raped Gene Carroll in the department store. He didn't know that they had committed fraud and stolen American secrets and betrayed the country and taken more money from foreign governments than any person in American history. This is a big, ugly, horrible mess. I don't think the Republicans could put lipstick on this Trump pig and sell this guy in 2024. But what's important is to do what you talked about, which is we must speak the truth. We cannot allow this right-wing noise machine influenced fake world, what Greg Sargent calls Foxlandia, right, mm -hmm. to be the way that we, we have to liberate ourselves from that world and go into this world of truth and share this world of truth and reality. As painful as it's going to be, we're going to have to talk about Donald Trump raping somebody. These are hard conversations to have, right? But we need to have them because we have an obligation as patriots, as people who love our country, to tell our fellow citizens the truth. That is our core obligation as citizens to be truthful with one another about who we, where the country is and what, and what is in front of us. And I yep. do think that we, we can build this network of information warriors, as you mentioned, two to three million people. What I'm calling on the campaign to do, and I have met with the campaign, I've discussed this with them, I've written them memos. We need to reimagine the war room in this election. I helped build the last war room. I was there in, in Little Rock. This war room needs to be not 20 sweaty kids drinking Red Bulls and producing TikTok videos. We need to have two to three million proud patriots who are wired into the campaign, amplifying the good works of Joe Biden and the Democrats, reaching 10, 20, 30 million people a day just through our networks, and to start drowning out this right-wing noise machine on the other side. We have more agency and power, I believe, than we understand. And it's why the, the work that you do, Edwin, here is so critical, and everyone is listening. Spreading good work, the news through your networks is how we beat MAGA. MAGA wants you to feel bad about your country, your president, your democracy, your leaders, your institutions, each other. It's a negative sentiment machine. We beat MAGA by putting positive information, by loving into our discourse, by loving our country, loving one another, being proud of our president, proud of our country, proud of our party. That's how we win. And so I am, I am really confident that right now this election that I'm describing is becoming more clear in people's minds. Strong Joe Biden, weak Donald Trump, right? Successful Democratic presidency, terror, you know, a terrible Republican, you know, presidential candidate. That contrast that I think we need to establish is becoming clearer and clearer every day. And Edwin, thank you for yeah. your work helping bring this all no. about. <laughs> Oh, I know. I love it. And, and you know, I mean, I, I earlier on this show, I had folks on from Swing Left and last week um, from um, uh, the Progressive Turnout Project, all uh, ways to help people, people who don't want to say I'm part of the Democratic Party, but who 
believe that this is a moment we have to come together uh, to beat Donald Trump, to just give them on ramps, you know, ways that they can do exactly what you're saying, become truth tellers um, in this in this process for the next 10 months. Well, listen, for anyone who's listening today, if you want to what I talk about in my Hopium communities, we need to do more and worry less, right, is the line I'm using. If you want to do more, there's one thing we need everybody to help with, which is that we have a special election in New York 3 on February 13th. It's the George Santos seat. We can flip that seat. Um, Tom Suozzi, a former congressman, is running. He's ahead in the polls. If he gets the money he needs and the volunteers to help drive turnout, um, you know, we're going to win there. And that's going to be a big national story that we flipped a Republican seat at the beginning of the election. If you go to my Hopium site, the Hopium Chronicles dot com, you can learn how to you can watch an interview I did with Tom on Wednesday. You can learn how to donate and volunteer. You can make call, calls from Illinois into, you know, into into New York three. You can test yep. people there. Just talk to Democrats. It's the easiest kind of work. We need your help. I mean, we we will win there as we won in Orlando, Florida last week. And as we will win, I think, in New York three, if we do the work, we'll win. If we do the work for Biden, we'll win. It's time now for people to start making decisions about how they're going to spend their time and money in this election cycle. The most important thing you can do this weekend is to help Tom Swazi, you know, win in New York three. I agree with that. Um, I want to talk to you about something else that I know you care about, and I do too. Um, and that is that I think we both see the potential for uh, some unbelievable change in North Carolina. And I know you're helping um, Anderson Clayton, sort of the new-ish now, but uh, yeah. head of the Democratic Party down there, reimagine um, how a Democratic Party in a state like North Carolina connects to the people in that state. And it's pretty stunning what uh, what she's already achieved. Yeah, listen, we, North Carolina, I, all of my work this cycle, I'm, I'm framing it under the concept of growth and expansion because I think MAGA's extremism is giving us an opportunity to take demographic and geographic real estate away from them as we did throughout 2022 and 2023. And to me, the most important expansion state this cycle is North Carolina. We need to expand the presidential map. We have a critical governor's race there against one of the wildest and craziest MAGA candidates the world has ever seen. We've got a very good candidate, Josh Stein, who's running as governor. This is one of the few states that has a governor's race this cycle. We need to win North Carolina. I've looked at lots and lots of polling. We can win. But we need a very strong party and, and the Biden campaign needs to come in. And we happen to have elected this dynamic and charismatic and very capable new chair. She's 25 years old. You, on the Hopi Insight, you can see an interview I've done with her, learn how to volunteer and give money. Yeah, I'm making a huge commitment to North Carolina and Anderson. I mean, she's terrific. And I think that, you know, to me, when you look at the six other big battleground states in Arizona, we have a Democratic governor and Constantly, a Democratic governor, a Democratic governor in Pennsylvania and in Michigan, right? And and you know that to me, we have a lot of Democratic assets in these other states. We have less in North Carolina, and so I'm trying to direct early resources and volunteers in to give her more capital to make investments mm-hmm. to make it more likely that we we flip North Carolina, turn it blue, turn Carolina blue, right? That's what they all say down there. Yep. So I, I think we I think we can do it, and I appreciate your continuing to echo that. To me, that's one of the most important projects in the next few months as we gear up for the general election. You, um, 
Gosh, I can't believe we don't have much time left. Uh, you, you I know, started I'm a little Hopium. chatty today. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, it's yeah. great. We, we, you started Opium Chronicles just not that long ago, but it's grown amazingly into a sort of stunning resource for Democrats and for people who are supporting, you know, the Biden administration and, and Democrats across the country this year. Um, and, you know, you've built this strong community. Seriously, could you did you imagine did you really think it was going to have this success, this kind of explosive success? Uh, no, <laughs> I didn't. And, I, and, uh, and, uh, and I'm it, I'm managing, you know, it's a beast. You know, I mean, I have 33,000 new friends that I didn't have before. And, you know, as you know, because you run a community as well, is that. You know, I try to answer every email and every message that I get. On, it's really important. It's getting a little bit harder than it used to because of the growth. But I, but it's important. To, I think we can end by the way you began, Edwin, is that that people want to believe again in America. They want to believe that this awful Trump era is not somehow the harbinger of our future, but something that we can put into the dustbin of history. They we're embarrassed and shamed and humiliated by him and his and his prominence. And they want they want the America that you and I grew up in, the the love of country that was so common for so many people, I think, when we were all growing up. And I often talk about how one of the greatest gifts that we have to try to give to our children is the kind of love of country that many of us had when we were Growing up, though, which is very hard to do right now, given that one of our two political parties has gone crazy and there's a, a very dangerous man who's going to reassert control over one of our two parties. But I think that what I have found in my work and in the talks I give to communities all across this country is this profound love of country and patriotism and hope and optimism and willingness to do the work to make tomorrow better. I mean, I talk about how hopium to me is hope with a plan. We just didn't want, we didn't hope the elections were going to be better in 2022. We did the work to make it so, right? We don't hope that 2024 is going to be a good election. We're doing the work to make it so. And I, I think that my own belief in the fundamental kind of de Tocquevillian democratic project of the United States has been strengthened through my journey. I think when we come out the other side of this awful Trump era, this democracy is going to be renewed and revitalized and stronger than it's ever been. I really believe that. But what we need to do is we need to get there together. And that means winning this election and hopefully winning it by a lot to sort of to put Trump and MAGA into the dustbin of history to loosen its dark grip on the Republican Party. That has to be our aspiration and our goal, right? Which is why everyone has to work as hard as they can, is that it's not just about winning, it's about running up the score and winning big and making this election a clear repudiation of this terrible politics, which is why everything you do, every text you make, every phone call you do, every postcard you write, every donation you make, every door that you knock on, it all matters because every time you do that, you're reminding the other side about the power of the people of the United States who are out there fighting to protect their democracy. What could be more affirming about the democratic project than this explosion of citizen activism that we've seen? Um, because our successes in these elections have not been top down. And when they've been bottom up, they've been people driven. And it's I think that I'm and I come away every day energized, inspired by the people that I'm meeting along the way 
who are fighting with everything they got to make sure that freedom and democracy don't slip away on their watch. And all I'm trying to do is to give them more tools to be more effective at the work that they do. That's got to be our last word because we're out of time. But Simon, as always, I really appreciate that you take the time in your incredibly busy schedule to spend some time with me and with uh, the folks who are listening. Thank you, Edwin. And thanks to all of you for everything you do. Well, how about that? That was pretty great. Um, We're going to take a quick break, and then I want to hear from you. Uh, Call in. You know the number. Edwin Eisentrap is taking your calls now at 773-763-9278. The big picture is on now. WCPT 820. Jim, welcome back. Hi, Edwin. Uh, first, I have to go over about this $80 million. But what kills me is, I wonder what kind of a finder fees he got from his son-in-law for the $2 billion from the Saudis. I explained uh, <laughs> loan to his son-in-law. But his rate, the rate he's going, he's going to end up having to get a job, Edwin. He's going to you know, maybe be like in groceries or something. I mean, because I don't know how many millions he can blow every week in, in the in court, but boy, at some point you got you might have to go out and uh, actually earn a living. What do you think? Yeah, well, there's one job he's never going to get. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! It's, you're not kidding. You're not kidding because you know, ever since 2016, I, I've been just dumbstruck by uh, by the situation. Uh, how a can artist can, uh, you know, through Fox News and right-wing radio and so on and so forth. I guess the propaganda does work in that regard, but as far as reality is concerned, no, I, I couldn't. Uh, there's no way I could look at that guy for more years. Have a great weekend, buddy. Have a great weekend, sir. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Steve, what's on your mind? Uh, yes, wanted to make a couple of points, and I, I think your last guest alluded to a lot of what I wanted to say. I mean, when you look at the breakdown, for instance, in New Hampshire, post-election, it turns out that one out of five Republicans said that they will never vote for Donald Trump. Two out of three independents say they will never vote for Donald Trump. So, yes, it's sort of sad to see, you know, what's developed in the Republican Party and that Donald Trump is is almost certainly going to be their nominee. But you've got to look deeper in terms of uh, who else is going to vote for him, because, you know, the base turns out, uh, you know, about 14 percent of Republicans actually showed up to vote in Iowa. You know, of those people, eight percent out of that uh, 14. So in other words, in terms of the whole number, uh, voted for Donald Trump. But okay, where were all the other people? Where will they, they be come election time? And that's the question a lot of us are asking. So what is it about Donald Trump that has reinvigorated his image in the last four years? Uh, nothing. So, you know, if any if anything is deteriorated. So I, I don't believe that, uh, that for instance, uh, we're going to get a bunch of crazy MAGA people to vote for Joe Biden. They'll turn out. They'll vote for their, you know, God and Savior, Donald Trump. But the reality is that a lot of uh, Republicans, and I don't expect them to vote for Biden either, uh, they'll probably opt to stay at home. Or as, as what happened in terms of 2020, you know, places like Wisconsin, a lot of people voted straight Republican ticket. And then when they got to the top of the ticket, they said Joe Biden instead of Donald Trump. So, you know, like I said, I don't think people should be as disheartened as they are. I know that they were perhaps hoping for someone else. But to be perfectly frank, I would rather run against Donald Trump as horrible a human being as he is and as dangerous as he is than somebody who could possibly beat 
uh, Joe Biden, like a Nikki Haley, because I think she doesn't have the same kind of baggage. So, you know, we should kind of be wary about, you know, uh, not, not not liking Donald Trump to be the nominee. There's a lot of advantages for us in Trump being the nominee, I would argue. There's dangers, but there's advantages as well. Yep. All right, Steve. Thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Uh, Helen, what's on your mind? Yeah, um, I loved your uh, last uh, person that you were interviewing. What, who, what was his name? Because I missed it. Simon Rosenberg. And if you go online to Hopium, H-O-P-I-U-M Chronicles, you can be part of that uh, uh, community that he's built of people focusing on these issues. Okay. Um, the reason why I, I really had hoped to be able to talk to him is I'm very hopeful after listening to him today. It sounds wonderful. But my daughter-in-law keeps assuring me that she listens to a lot of progressive stuff online, and young people are not going to vote for Biden because of the Israeli thing. And I wondered how he felt about that or how you feel about that, because that's a scary thing. I think young people are smarter than you give them credit for. And November is not tomorrow. Um, hopefully mm-hmm. this terrible tragedy in the Middle East will not be they won't, they will be, they'll be mending rather than the continued uh, misery over there by then. But young people care about things like uh, the economy. They care about things like the environment. They care about things like abortion rights. They care uh, think about things like LGBTQ rights. So young people Wait, aren't going to decide book, on one issue. The environment, everything totally like that. Totally right. But so they're, they're not going to vote on, on, on one issue. And, and, and I think they're not going to make up their mind entirely on one of the most complicated issues um, on the planet, right? One that has been so difficult for people for generations. Um, and I think everyone will agree that what's going on in that part of the world is an enormous uh, tragedy and heartbreak, um, and that we have to do everything possible to heal over there. And no one is working harder than Biden to bring about long-term peace. I agree, but a lot of people don't know that, I don't think. Well, well, we have that. That's why you have a voice and I have a voice, and we have, you know, uh, 10 months or so to make sure everybody hears it. And that mm-hmm. we got to do it. We have to raise our voices. Well, thank you for your encouraging words and for Simon Rosenberg's encouraging words. Makes thank me you feel for listening, today. Helen. Thank you. You bet. Uh, um, Paul. Hi, Edward. I don't think that the conflict in Israel is going to matter at all because um, there's going to be another problem for Donald Trump. And that is, I don't think Donald Trump is going to get 60 million votes. Do you know what the high watermark for Republicans was before 2020? It was, it was it, Mitt Romney got like 62 and a half million votes. And uh, uh, at that time, I, I think Hillary Clinton got about, or uh, sorry, uh, sorry, Barack Obama got 66 million. Although the first time against John McCain, it was, he had, uh, Obama had 70 million um, John McCain got 60 million. So the high watermark before the 2020 election for Republicans was 62 million or 62 and a half million. 
So what was the difference? Why did Donald Trump get $74 million? And what he doesn't want to acknowledge is that it was COVID and mail-in voting. He benefited a lot from the, the, the ballots, the ballots, we don't count them. He would have counted himself out of about 12 million votes. So I think now that people are going back to the polls, uh, we're going to see the numbers return. I don't think that young people, they might be upset about the, the, the issue in Israel, but I, don't, I, I think I agree with you. They don't. That's not that's not the, the that's not all, that's not what they're voting about. They're upset about it, and and it's upsetting to everyone. And so people don't just say, "Oh, I, they might say, oh, I'm never going to vote for that guy." But when they get to the polls, it's a choice. It is a comparative choice. They're not going to say, "Oh, I don't like the Israel situation. I think I'll vote for Donald Trump," who, by the way, would have would have dropped you know the mother of all bombs uh, that he did on Afghanistan to show what a what a big uh, member he has. Uh, it killed about 30 people, maybe at most. He would have dropped that on Gaza; would have destroyed Gaza entirely. But and, and that's not a, that's not a choice. No, um, not a choice. No, no, it's, it's not a choice. So the other thing I just wanted to get onto was, interestingly, the Donald Trump. Okay, first he was found in this case this week. His behavior in court assured he did not only defame. Eugene Carroll, he defamed the jury in the case as he was in court, as he was smacking his hands and saying, this is a witch hunt and this is a con a con job. And all of that is an insult to anybody in the jury. I don't care what your political leanings are. He was insulting the jury by his behavior and then storming out of court during closing arguments is the ultimate slap in the face. I, I was like, and they got it. They got it. The jury got it. They slapped him with a heavy punitive penalty. He can try to appeal that, and maybe he'll get something taken off of that. I don't know. He'll appeal it. I don't know how much, given his behavior, I don't know how much effect it will have. But what really bugs me, or what really concerns me, is the ruling of the Supreme Court on the the authority of the uh, Bureau of Homeland Security to... uh, patrol the borders or to make border security in Texas, it was a 5-4 decision, and it was a shadow docket. It was a shadow ruling. The court is too damn scared to say who they are. Well, they have a lot. We know who they are. (laughs) We know who these people are. And and, and you and I have talked a lot about the problems with the court. And, oh, my, you know, they have a lot to tell us in the next few weeks. They've been waiting. they got a Colorado decision they have to come to pretty quickly, I would think. They've got to, you know, they're going to hear an immunity uh, appeal pretty quickly. And time is ticking on these guys. So, um, you know, they've wanted to make all the important decisions. Now we're all going to see them do it. Yeah. Well, you know, the the Colorado ruling is easier, I think, than Jill Weinbank's says. I mean, I listened to her, and I, she's obviously a very, very expert lawyer, but um, my opinion, they, they're, they're not, they don't have to rule on whether he can hold office. They're, they're, the, the question is, does the state of Colorado, within a, is, is the state of Colorado within its powers to exclude him from the ballot based yeah, on... Yep. Yeah, that's it. That, that's all yep. they have. It doesn't mean he can't run or he can't assume the, assume the office, 
but they do, and they, they do have the power, uh, and they only have to prove by preponderance of the evidence that it's a likelihood that he did engage in an insurrection. The court can just say, this is a political question, and we don't need to rule on it. They can stay out of the way. That's their way out, and that's what they should do, and let Colorado do what they want to do. And that doesn't disenfranchise any, any voter can write his name in if they want to. They're not disenfranchising anyone. He's, he's still, and by the way, that's what they would have to do anyway if, uh, well, we didn't, you know, the state of Colorado, and no state is obligated to have a ballot for a president anyway. We, we, that's the way the legislature in Colorado and all the states have decided since 1880 that, yeah, we will have a popular vote for president, and that's the way we will, that's the manner in which we will select our electors. They don't have to do that. So I don't no, think the court no. needs to really have too much trouble with it. All right, Paul, I'm going to leave that there and see if I can squeeze sure. in a couple more before we go. Uh, have a good week. Eduardo, okay, you're up. Thanks. Yeah, Edward, th- thank you for taking my call here. I thought this was a good story because uh, trade schools is a big thing for me, and there's a lot of successes that come from out of that. Uh, this person's from uh, Liberia, but he lives in Baltimore. He Crossed over, uh, did a transatlantic on a single engine, no autopilot. His name is Abner Only. He's from Liberia. Uh, this stops in Greenland, Iceland, Europe, and made it back to his uh, land, uh, Monrovia in Liberia. So hopefully more people will be getting into uh, flight school, and we need more tra- uh, trainees. I think this is something good for the young people to get into. Okay, that's kind of fun. Yeah. All right, anybody Thank wants you. to be a pilot, pay attention. Yep. Right. Thank you, Eduardo. Really, that's good. That's good information. All right, everybody. Um, before we go, I want to uh, tell you I will post on Threads uh, the link to Simon's Hopium Chronicles community. Um, uh, I might even post it on Twitter for those of you who are following. Twitter. I don't really go there very often anymore and don't like it, but I will do it. Um, it's important that you, uh, uh, you know, get the information you need to be the strongest advocates you can be as we go out into the world uh, in this election cycle that we are now in. Um, I am bullish on our our chances. Really, I am. Um, and I think um, the, the only thing that stands between us and putting an end to this era of MAGA insurrection in America is winning, is doing the work, right? And if we do the work, we'll win. I, you've heard from experts today, um, who, you know, from political strategists like Simon to, to swing left, which does, you know, field work on the ground, what it's like, where we're focused. We, we have a smart strategy and people are determined to work hard. Join us. Get out there. Volunteer some time and some money and we will, we, we will have a new day. And won't that be something to be done with this? I mean, I don't know. I, this has been hanging over us for years now. It's been debilitating. It's been as, you know, not as deadly as COVID, but as depressing in some ways for America. We've been at each other's throats and we've been, we, we've been faced with, you know, like challenges to our sense of reality by the madness that's taken over a chunk of our country. But this is it. 
we now are in, you know, it's, it's a long haul. It's, you know, it's only almost February and we got to get till November, but we're going to get there and we're going to win. So sign up. I'm going to tell you about this every week. It's going to be what we talk about, but we are going to be, you know, steadily increasing and we'll win state legislative races. Thank goodness for the people who live in those states. Their lives will get better and we will take back this federal government and continue the good work that we were, you know, that that we were able to accomplish just a few years ago um, in Congress doing so much. Thank you all. See you next week. Take care. Bye. Thank you.